Hello and welcome back to MetaStation. We have a very special podcast for you this weekend. Some of you saw on Twitter, this weekend is Erin's birthday. Everyone say happy birthday, Erin. Happy birthday, Erin. And she's got family in town all weekend, so we were not able to find time to record. And we also had a long conversation after 412 aired about kind of some of the directions the storyline's going, some of the character arc. And we've all sort of felt like there's a lot of stuff that we just aren't totally sure how we feel about it yet. And we won't really know until we see the finale and kind of see how all of these storylines land and how things kind of wrap up. So what we're going to do next weekend is we're going to do a special two-part, I'm sure it'll end up being two parts because it'll be like a million hours long, (laughs) wrap-up podcast on 412 and 413, talk about them together. But we didn't want to not have a podcast for you this weekend. So what we have, which I'm very excited about, is we're going to do a special roundtable podcast talking about team adults. So we're going to talk about Indra and Jaha and then spend a lot of time on Cabby, both individually and <laughs> their true wonderful love. Erin is not here because she's doing family things, but I am joined by two totally delightful friends of mine, two of my favorite people in fandom and in life, who are also cabbie experts, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves and talk a little bit about what they do. Hey, Brittany, say hi. Hi, Brittany. Damn it, you didn't say hi, Brittany. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, I didn't realize that was unclear. What I meant was- Listen- I am so sleep deprived. I was on a red eye this morning and then I interviewed Sachin and then I slept for another two hours. Just shut up. So this is Brittany. Um, Hi. uh, Hi, I'm Brittany. I actually do podcast normally on the Aficionados, but today I'm going to podcast like a crazy person. Um, But yeah, I created the Aficionados with uh, Robin Jeffrey on Twitter and we are giant fans of Metastation, so I'm really happy to be here. Hi, Brittany. And Sam, tell us about you. Sorry. Whenever you're there ready. There were people in here, so I, like, lost all time. Oh, okay. Got it. Choo-choo. Hi, I'm Sam. I normally write television reviews for Telltale TV. I review The 100 as well as Supergirl, and this summer I'll be doing Winona Earp. And... Yeah. Why does she sound so sweet and professional and, like... I don't know! like the devil. Who is oh, Sam? Yes. <laughs> so uh, regular Metastation listeners might recognize Brittany and Sam's beautiful voices from our Unity Days wrap-up podcast. The two of them, along with Brittany's recording partner, Robin Jeffries, and then, of course, Dropship podcast host, Joe Garfine. We were all on a meta panel together at Unity Days talking about the show and predictions for season four and things like that. So I'm really excited to have them back. Um, and also because the three of us are just relentlessly devoted cabbie fans. (laughs) And so the opportunity to just flail about our ship in a marginally professional setting was (laughs) very exciting for all of us. What do you mean? So, but we're going to save that for the end. Oh, I was going to say, what do you mean? We don't normally automatically flail about our ships in all our professional avenues. <laughs> That's a fair That's point. We, we, we normally hide it better. I, I When we did the podcast... You think you was, hide it better? Oh, well, I'm... That's, that's I, cute, Claire. Okay, listen. <laughs> listen, no, out, like, out in gen pop, like among gen normal pop. people. <laughs> I stand by this. It's not going away. You guys can laugh at me all no, you want. Gen Pop gen sounds like good. the American version of K-pop. No, Gen Pop is good. It's <laughs> like there's K-pop, J-pop, and now there's Gen Pop. 
It's the idea that Claire thinks that she's hiding that she's cabbie trash anywhere. Well, no. Okay, no, listen, listen. When we recorded our podcast about the sex scene episode was the week that we, that we had Joe. So I had to sound like a grown up <laughs> because we had a, because like Joe was here and she's like, Joe is like a smart adult. And I was like, well, you know, the thing, like I had to like sound like a, like a fans person instead of just high pitched screaming for 48 minutes, which is all I really wanted to do. <laughs> Me- meanwhile every time i write a review where they interact it's like here's three paragraphs about why they're in love <laughs> and why it's important <laughs> to the plot <laughs> but you like do it in like a totally professional way like it doesn't it doesn't feel like band girl flailing it's like that reviewer is so smart and also <laughs> always has things to say about cabbie but it doesn't sound like none of this sounds like the way our group chat sounds like is what i'm trying to say <laughs> group chat is just a dumpster fire <laughs> Uh, anyway, so so we're going to save Cabbie to the end so we can like cue up our screaming. But I want to start with taking these characters one by one and talk a little bit about their role in 412 specifically and then also kind of expand that to how we see that fitting in with what their arc has been and what their role has been over the course of the season. And so I think let's start with Indra. So Sam, what are your thoughts on... Indra in 412. Do you have thoughts or feelings or hopes or dreams? (laughs) Um, I think Indra is awesome in 412. Uh, I think she's doing for Octavia a lot of the same things she she did in the past for Lexa. But I think there's more... I don't know. I feel like there's more of an emotional connection between she and Octavia than there was between she and Lexa. Because... Uh, Lexa was her commander, but Octavia's sort of become like a quasi-daughter figure of sorts. And she's also like regained her connection with Gaia over the season. So I think it's really cool to like watch her mother them both, which is something I never saw coming for Indra. Yeah, I love that. Well, and I I do, I was thinking about that. I do want to, I want to talk a little bit about the Lexa-Octavia their relationship with Indra, because it really does feel like because of who Lexa was and because of her role, there was always this kind of like a ceremonialness and a formality and kind of a like emotional distance where like their roles to each other were really clear. And I think because it just started out with a whole different dynamic between her and Octavia, where Octavia was like, first, a pain in her ass, <laughs> and then, like, then her second, and now Octavia's kind of, like, Octavia's sort of gone from being Indra's second to Indra being her second, but in a way that feels really organic. But I think because of that evolution, it just, it has a very different flavor than it did with Lexa, which I think is really interesting. While still, I think they're giving Octavia, like, we're watching her sort of step into that Lexa role in some ways yeah whether that's good or bad remains to be seen yeah (laughs) yeah i i could i could certainly live without the bindi and the brown face and the cape like i think they could have done a little less literally yeah i would like queen octavia yeah sure great fantastic octavia mm, yeah don't don't need it yeah i feel like that yeah it's complicated i i because i i do because i like the idea of I was very here for us getting to watch Octavia assume a leadership role in a way that she's never had to do before. And she's also spent a lot of the past four seasons 
kind of sitting in judgment of other people's tough leadership choices that she wasn't necessarily in a position to understand what went into the making of that choice. She just kind of like judges upon the results of it and says, you shouldn't have done that. And so I like the idea of her being the person who's in a position of having to make those choices and do that stuff. And I, and I really, really like that it has brought her back together with Indra in this way. But it is, yeah, but I wonder like, I wonder what the leadership structure in that bunker is going to be if like Octavia being essentially a de facto commander over all 12 of the clans like remains the line that they're taking with Octavia. Yeah, like the thing that makes me uh, the most curious with Indra and Octavia and like Octavia stepping into like a pseudo Lexa role is whether this is what actually Indra intended for Octavia. Um, Because we know that while Indra respects the line of commander, she doesn't really She's not 100% down with how the whole religion around it goes, but it seems like she's embraced the idea that they can't all just exist without some kind of leader, but she didn't want to follow an Ice Nation leader. She wanted to follow a commander sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So I really want to know like what Indra's point of view is on the power structure of the Grounders and whether she thinks that Octavia is the absolute right person to be the next commander or if it's just like convenient for Tree Crew for Octavia to be the next commander. Yeah, or or is it that, like, is Indra's unquestioning, like, loyalty and support of Octavia in this new leadership role? Because Octavia won the Conclave, and she won it fairly, and, like, those were the rules that were set up, where, where like, would Indra, you know, would Indra have followed whoever won the Conclave in the same way? And probably not in the same way, because it wouldn't have been Octavia. Mm-hmm. But but would she have been just as loyal to sort of making sure that peace was fulfilled and enacted if it was if it had been, you know, if it was Luna, well, no, Luna, if it was Luna, I'll be dead. But if it was if it was, you know, Ilian or somebody like that, where would Indra fall on it? But I do feel like what I, the, the interesting that I really liked, I thought was, you know, every time they sort of flesh her out and kind of give her more emotional range and nuance, aside from just sort of being like. Warrior, stoic warrior lady. Um, I'm always really, really into that. But I love the little moment where, you know, where Octavia said to her, almost like she was sort of confessing something that she thought was like, you know, a, a failure that like, why is everyone following me? Like, I didn't do this on my own. Like, you know, that Roan helped her and that, you know, Ilian helped her and that she didn't like... She she doesn't necessarily see herself as like the sole, you know, she doesn't see herself as a Hedda. She doesn't see herself as like the sole unquestioned leader. And Indra basically was like, yeah, that's what being a leader is. You know, it's like you have a team, people help you, which is a, I don't know, a more interestingly, I think, nuanced view of how Indra sees leadership than I think maybe we've gotten before like sort of an acknowledgement that like even in this really rigid hierarchical system that things should be in some degree like collaborative and cooperative you know so I don't know um I thought that was I thought that was really interesting I'm also really interested in like like how are she and Ja gonna get along (laughs) stuck in a bunker for five years yeah that's the thing I was thinking about was like the stark contrast between Indra being like yeah you need people around you to support you and Jaha and to an extent Clark and Lexa, of course, who really believed that they were, like, the lone leader. Yeah. The contrast Yeah, between- like... Go ahead. Sorry. Um, the contrast between Indra's, like, guidance of Octavia and Jaha's guidance of Clark is just, like, so stark. Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. like, Octavia and Indra... Indra 
trusts Octavia and she's there to support her and like help her. And Jaha is like feeding his own agenda through Clark. And it's just really, I'm mad at Jaha because he's awful. Yeah. <laughs> Who isn't mad at Jaha? <laughs> Listen, the worst thing he's ever done is make both Griffin women hate themselves for things they didn't, weren't entirely in charge of. And he messed up Kane's hair, which I also think is a sin. Honestly. Oh my god. Like, he deflated the hair. Kane was so off his hair game this episode. Yeah. It deflated from, like, hero hair to, like, I'm tired hair. And I was like, how dare you do that to that hairdo? It looked so good when he was talking to Abby. And then he just... (laughs) I know. Talked to Jaha. And then it was like, ugh. Yeah, and then it's a womp womp. And then he suddenly looked, like, 40 years older. And I was like, how dare you? Ian did not look 80. Okay, well, that- <laughs> Sam can't do math because Ian's 50. Ian did not look 90. He's- Sam can't do math. They're Sam 40 can't do math. in the show. Let me live. He doesn't look 50 either. So, like, Claire can't do tech and Sam can't do math. And I can't do words. So I also can't. We're a I great can't. Team. I would say it's a it's a bigger daily problem that I can't do time. <laughs> I was I was gonna let you not have it. I was gonna spend this entire no. podcast not dragging you for that. You know what? You weren't though. You were gonna crack. You were gonna make it five minutes, and then you were gonna like make a time zones joke. Just get it over with. Get it out of your system. <laughs> Listen, the Metastation listeners don't know that I wasn't like not gonna do that. They don't know that. We have pretty smart listeners. Yeah. The running joke between, I think everyone, including all of your listeners, is that you're bad at time. I'm really bad at time. It's really, really true. <laughs> Claire, quick, what time is it where I am? Uh, ha, joke's on you. We're back in the same time zone. It is 843. <laughs> I was like, is this a trick question? Is she going to get it? Claire, what time is it where I am? Even I don't know that. Oh my god. It's three it's hours. 11.44. Yeah, but I'm used to it being like seven hours, so. Please get closer to me. <laughs> Everyone, no. I think we've all agreed that Sam has to move closer to the West Coast. Yeah, Sam needs to move here. Ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. We can't leave the West Coast. We're West Coast people now. Yeah, there's we're beaches. in a good time zone. There's we're beaches in God's on this. <laughs> there's beaches on the East Coast too. It's called a coast for a reason. Yeah, yeah but they're not but on good the we- beaches. On the West Are Coast, you, you get to watch the Oscars me? starting at five, and then you're not done at midnight. And if you're in Hawaii, you get to watch the hundred at three o'clock in the afternoon. It's beautiful. Now Hawaii is anyway, different from so, the West Coast. I'll go there. In like I mean, two I mean. Okay. Well. <laughs> Anyway, what were we talking about? Let's all move to Hawaii. We were talking about Indra. Indra. Okay. We're we're very easily sidetracked, as I'm sure you'll all come to know over the course of the next hour. (laughs) It's so so cute that you think it's just going to be an hour. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well. We're going to spend an hour on It'll be less than four. This will be like, this is is truly going to be like a condensed mini version of Metastation. So we're not going to go four hours. It's diet Metastation. It's going to be like, it's diet fine yeah yeah she's fine (laughs) so so back to indra so let's talk about indra's arc over the course of the season slash over the course of the show and kind of how we feel like where she's at now going into the finale sort of wraps up into that Brittany, do you have thoughts i do actually um i talked about this on the aficionados a little bit but 
we were talking this morning with Sachin about how Indra and Octavia, like, especially Adina and Marie have such powerful chemistry that they can sort of communicate entire emotional connections with each other just with their eyes. And I think that's such a hard one thing for those two characters because for about three seasons, we only really knew Indra as like the angry black woman stereotype. Mm -hmm. And this season we saw actual complexity brought to her in some really real ways with the introduction of Gaia and sort of like the low-key competitiveness between Gaia and Octavia for the role of like Indra's daughter or Indra's protege. And so... I'm personally really grateful that Indra has been fleshed out as much as she has this season, considering I don't know if she's had more screen time this season, but I think she's definitely had more development this season. Is Yeah, it's definitely, this is the this is the richest and most interesting and complex side of her we've gotten to see. And it does, it does feel like, well, I mean, contractually, it might have been the same number of episodes this season as last season, but I think it feels like more because it's, it, I think you're right, because it's better material, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, and it's, and it's, it's introducing us to new facets of her character. Gaia, in particular, who I think has been, for, for very limited screen time, one of the really standout supporting characters of this season, who I just want, I mean, if I could pick any person who's a supporting character to become a season regular next se- season, it would totally be Gaia. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All I can hear is people behind Sam. Oh God, I'm so yeah. sorry. I wish I could just be like, it's okay. get out. I'm doing a thing. <laughs> Go away. If you can hear me, I'm talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Anyway, so Indra. So Indra. Yeah, we can keep talking while while Sam waits out her I mean, unexpected I can talk guess. over them. Um, oh, yeah, talk over them. I don't yeah. really know what I was going to say, but if Claire has thoughts first that would be great (laughs) (laughs) well no talk about um talk about gaia if you have thoughts on indra and gaia so indra has a daughter (laughs) it's just sam's just gonna go all the way back to the beginning here i'm just that's so wild to me like i i just i did not expect it at all but it's awesome and like it's not necessarily in this week's episode but in 410 when they had the conclave, there was so much like powerful wordless communication between Indra and Gaia that I was just like, like they didn't even the scene where the tree crew tribute, I guess. What's the word? <laughs> this is not the Hunger Games, but <laughs> it's the Hunger Games. <laughs> the tree crew person gets killed and then Gaia has to extinguish his flame and then just the looks on their faces and then that hug. Yeah. Like, you know, they haven't been close for years, but like the deep connection that they have to their clan just was so real in that moment. And that that hug was so we talked about this a little bit on on our in our podcast the episode because like that hug was so was so important for so many reasons one key one of which is that like you know that you do see the you know the estrangement that they've they've had and this kind of like the way their different roles within their culture have sort of pulled them apart you see all of that fall away and it's just like a mom and a daughter who think they're going to lose each other and and it's like nothing else in that moment matters you know except that based on everything that they know you know like they not just they but like everyone that they know their whole clan is is gonna die you know and and there's no way out of it because these were rules that they made and agreed to you know and so and then for Gaia who like 
knowing that, you know, like feels like the first or second one out, I think it's like right at the beginning. And she still has to like, you know, go out there and do her fucking job anyway, like a goddamn boss <laughs> was like, you know, like, like, I just I love Gaia. But yeah, but it but it really is like that moment was so, you know, I think what, what for me really kept the stakes of that episode feeling like really, really high were like all those little moments where we came back to the throne room and we checked back in with like the real human consequences of all of these warriors dying. So it wasn't just like Game of Thrones, like murder death porn, like just for this, like stabbing for the <laughs> sake of stabbing. You know, it was like every one of those people dying means that hundreds of other people are going to die. And watching that through Gaia and Indra having that beautiful wordless moment, I was just like, oh, devastated. So I'm really happy, like, I'm surprised, but really, really happy that I that they both made it into the bunker. Or I'm assuming Gaia did. I'm assuming that Tree Crew would have picked her as one of their hundred. Yeah, Gaia's mm-hmm. in the uh, crowd in the promo for the next episode. Oh, great! Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so I'm really I'm I'm excited that they that they made it. I'm excited for what role they could play in season five, and and hopefully that we're gonna get to see more of them together you know and and their relationship sort of growing and and deepening now that this like estrangement between them has been um has been mended but it but i really i do think it was really interesting looking at how does it reframe our like how does it retroactively reframe our perception of indra's relationship with people like octavia and lexa that we now know that all that time that she had this daughter their age that barely spoke to her. Like it just makes, it makes her relationships with both of those two women so much more emotionally impactful in hindsight now that we know about Gaia and their history. And like one of the interesting things from this season is as messy as the development of some of like the bigger relationships has been, I feel like the more secondary and less written to relationships do more with the smaller amount of info and time that they're given. Agreed. So with Indra and Gaia, they do so much with so little and it ends up having more impact than all of like the, I think borderline melodrama that's going on with a lot of like the other core relationships in the show. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like I think, I think they've done a really good job of fleshing out a lot of, like I think they've swung and missed in some really big broad strokes ways with, you know, the really, really major characters like with like, I'm still really struggling with with Clark, which we'll talk about more next week. But yeah, but like, I felt so much between Indra and Gaia, I feel so much when you know, like the or when when Indra gives Octavia her sword, and like what that means for them and their relationship what that means for who Indra is like, it's just and, and a lot of this I obviously like a lot of this is acting like a lot of this mm-hmm. is just Tati Gabrielle and Adina Porter are just fucking phenomenal yeah. actors you know and and their familial chemistry together is so great but but yeah but I feel like it it really yeah it's it's just it's sort of it keeps kind of I think fleshing out and fleshing out the world of and 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 I also feel like this about like Jackson and Miller too yeah you know? like we have the, we have these Jackson and Indra are these characters that we've like known for a long time in roles that started off kind of one note or kind of like utilitarian Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and begun to be more fleshed out in season three where we saw like Jackson took the chip and was then sort of looped into an A story for the first time. And then we had Indra's friendship with Kane and, you know, and then her sort of teaming up with Pike and Murphy. And so we sort of shifted them 
into combinations with, you know, with different batches of characters that sort of shook things up. But I really feel like both of them, like layering in all this new stuff in season four, where they're beginning, they feel more and more like three-dimensional people. And I feel like those moments have been all season long have been really interesting. We've gotten, you know, like we've gotten that with Jackson. We've gotten that with Nyla. We've gotten that with Roan. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's always, that's, that's, I think really satisfying to, to watch those moments kind of come together. Although it, it does feel like they don't always hit those beats quite so reliably with some of the principles, which is its own set of problems. But, <laughs> yeah. but they really are building out the world, which is great. I think they rely very smartly a lot on their actors to do more than, what the time allows them to and Mm -hmm. especially when you have someone as good as adina it's shocking to me that she's not a series regular because she's so good yeah she's so Mm -hmm. good yeah and and i feel like i you know i wonder if i mean if the if the premise that they have set up in this episode becomes the premise they follow through on for the finale in season five which is that all of these people are trapped in a bunker for five years i am really interested in how like, how does somebody like Indra transform in a world with theoretically no more clan boundaries? And like, what does she do? Because Indra is very much like a free, free roaming person. Like she has a huge world that I really can't see her very much like Octavia being contained in that capacity. Mm-hmm. So like, what, what, what does she do as a warrior in an area that doesn't really require fighting. It doesn't require the exact set of skills that she has, you know, really passed on to Octavia. What does she and Octavia do? Yeah. In a bunker with a bunch of sky people. Yeah. Does she become like a politician? That feels, well, that could be interesting, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're going to need some more engineers, so. Yeah. That's true. So they can teach her how studying. to like, like, here, you're in charge of farming. Yeah. She'd probably pick it up so fast, too. She'd be like, all of you are fools. Like, here's a very yeah. simple way to do the things that you've <laughs> overcomplicated. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, and that would be a. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. If you had another joke, you could keep going. I had a question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Good. So we've, we saw Indra get comfortable with guns like last season, but mm-hmm. when. She brings up the guns from the armory in this episode, and she and Octavia start passing them out to the other warriors. When did they learn how to shoot? What a terrific question. What a good point. Because (laughs) wasn't it grounder lore, like, not to touch guns? And then Indra- Yeah. Indra told Kane that. Yeah. Indra only started to use it in season three when she teamed up with Pike. And then yeah, she used it she again in the, the capital. Only one. But, like, did she teach all the rest of her people? Oh, here's how we can kill more Ice Nation. Listen, it was the Tree Crew hive mind. Oh, oh. <laughs> so wait, are they still chip? Yeah, that's yeah. like the only thing. <laughs> I mean, I I do feel like I like I have I have no problem with that being a choice, but I wish that we had gotten to unpack a little bit more how the grounders feel about that, you know, because I, I, cause we did get it. We got a little drive by mention of like in the scene in the Capitol where Indra basically says like, give me all your guns so she can give them to her guards. So oh, like, there's yeah, sort of an implication true. at that point that, um, that at least some of them had then learned how to shoot. But again, but I mean, we, didn't we didn't see, see that. Her like, for all, like all we've three seen episodes. So yeah. So maybe it all happened off screen. Maybe she was somewhere outside in the radiation, like giving everyone, target practice also maybe some of them paid attention when kane did that 
target practice demonstration because like i know we as viewers were really paying more attention (laughs) to certain parts of that but maybe they were actually paying attention to the parts they were supposed to pay attention to maybe maybe instead of like me the anti-nra pacifist feeling really troubled and conflicted by how hot (laughs) came with the gun is (laughs) there it is just being like i don't even recognize myself but I do think, I think because season three leaned so heavily on, like, a big part of Indra's arc over the course of season three, I think, was through her friendship with Kane, through developing this partnership with Sky Crew, through everyone having to sort of unite against the chip, her having to really, like, like with her, we watched her do it. We watched her kind of push through that instinctive fear and distrust and resistance towards technology. And then what we saw after that was it was kind of like, and I guess and maybe this makes sense that like that once Indra did it, it was okay for all of Indra's soldiers to do it. But yeah, what we never saw, we never saw anyone else having to kind of reckon with what that meant, you know, mm-hmm. and and the grounders that we've seen using guns have basically been, you know, I mean, this is one of my big beast with with Titus too, is that it's like Titus is like the high Freaking priest. Titus. It should have been. Frickin' Titus. It should have been, like, unclean for him to even touch it. And, like, that was never circled back to or addressed, you know? So I do, I mean, I, I, part of me sort of wonders, like, is it, did it come about because the sight of, like, a great big grounder with, like, that metal face mask and all of his hulking grounder gear with a machine gun feels sort of, like, inherently terrifying? And let's, like, lean into that visual and then kind of not necessarily unpack the journey of how we got there. Or, or I guess, or just using it, or I guess maybe a more charitable way of of phrasing it. That's not that's not quite so so judgy. Is the idea that now grounders just casually knowing how to operate guns, like visual shorthand for the fact that there are less and less and less of these sort of cultural differences and divides and like the boundaries between them don't exist as much anymore as they used to, especially in the wake of. The flame being destroyed, the commander cult being sort of, I guess, revealed as being related to technology and that shifting at maybe like maybe the the superstitions around guns no longer exist in the same way now that everyone knows that the commander of flame is a piece of computer equipment. I don't know. Well, it's like a constant destruction of like the new normal for all of them. Yeah. That's like what I think Indra's like basis line is as a character is constantly going through a crisis of faith and then constantly having to readjust to a new normal, and then that normal is ripped away, and she has to keep readjusting to all of the changes that are happening to her. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I really like that in season four, we see her actually taking a role to be, like, proactive in trying to enact change, because the landing of Sky Crew has impacted her so much that, like, first she lost her uh, sort of preconceived notions of, like, guns and weapons and how the mountain worked. And then it was how her daughter's faith worked. And whether or not any of that was real. And it was Lex and all of those things. So I think we've reached a point with Indra where she's tired of having things constantly happen to her. And she wants to actually make things happen now. I like that. I like that interpretation. I like the idea of proactive leader Indra instead of reactive second in command Indra. I think that's way more interesting. Yeah. And like the fact that she's doing it with Octavia instead of, you know, instead of Octavia or... Uh, using Octavia as a conduit for her own agenda, she is supportive and emotionally, like, there for Octavia and for Gaia. And it just goes to show, like, in general, when you do 
really supportive mothers on this show, of course, Monty's mother excluded, I, I guess, um, they do it really well. Mm-hmm. And they and they also, I mean, I I'm a sucker for any show that really validates and takes seriously like the interior lives of mothers. Like mm-hmm. This is this is why we all were like fell so hard for Big Little Lies. Right? Yes, like, the whole the whole thing about that show is that like motherhood and women who are mothers can be incredibly like rich and complex and three dimensional and interesting without having to be conventional mom stereotypes like there's so much inherent you know character drama that you can mine out of just the experience of being a mom over 40 and like smart writers take that seriously so i i agree with you i think that adding indra to the to the roster of the really complicated and nuanced and three-dimensional and interesting like posse of of moms on the show and not all of them are good you know like hannah's very complicated naya was insane deeply complicated Um, (laughs) deeply complicated yeah like like naya we almost know more about posthumously than we ever really saw of her on screen yeah Mm -hmm. which is a damn shame by the way because i was ready to induct her into team adults no problem i know what a criminal waste of a very expensive guest star like was like why why do we only have brenda strong for one episode i was so ready she's being i wanted brenda strong versus Paige turco i wanted that in my life yes i wanted a mama yes 100%. 100%. She's doing that yeah. exact thing on um, Supergirl now, though. Like, Supergirl, the finale is filled with moms, and I'm, like, really emotional about it. Sorry, this is not the podcast oh, for that. That but, sounds like, beautiful. It's all moms. No, it, it kind of is, though. I'm super excited. Because we're yeah, always yeah. Ta- we're talking about, like, the team adults and the whole notion of, like, why we even, like, I think, like, as a trio basically started the team adults hashtag. Oh, yes. Was because we wanted to hear more about, like, these complex lives of these characters that are kind of there but not being pushed narratively like in ways that are really enriching for us, which is show like it's that's why shows like Big Little Lies and Grace and Frankie work because it they're exploring what happens after you hit 40. Yeah. Because life doesn't stop then. Yeah. And yeah, and and relationships don't stop then and sexuality doesn't stop then and complicated relationships with, you know, with your children don't stop then like that, that. You know, that there's something and that's something I do really think that I really do respect about, you know, about the hundred as I as I think that the weight that they give to like in the in the writing, the weight that they give to these characters for a show that that I think was initially sold and marketed as a teen show. And I think that they I think to give them credit that I think the writers always wanted it to be more than that. Mm -hmm. But I think that there is also a huge contingent of the fandom that sees it as primarily a teen show and or for primarily a teen audience. And so I, I I think it's really important. Like if you look at just at this past episode, just looking at just 412, how much of the weight of the plot, you know, like like plot, like problems with the plot aside, but how much of the weight of what happened emotionally was carried by those core four adult characters is like, I think is kind of remarkable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's what I liked most about this episode was that it was such a, so reminiscent of, the way the dynamics were broken down in season one and how it had like the kids story and the adult story and they were running concurrently and like they affected each other but like you still got both version like both sides and so that was kind of what it felt like they had equal weight yeah 
that's the thing that I like the most about one of the things I really miss about season one was that I mean I, I I really like I do like having the groups integrated like I like us getting to see the adults and the kids interacting but I really loved that in season one the stories that were centered around the really complicated sort of political and leadership dynamics among Abby and Jaha and Kane which I was really excited that we got to return to in this episode like and really with a whole bunker storyline like that trifecta and their different ways of approaching the world and then throwing in you know Indra and the grounders is sort of a complicating factor I liked that they were never that it wasn't it wasn't like oh you have a teen show and then you have like parents in the background whose job is just sort of to be a buzzkill yeah you know like they were they were people first they were interesting characters first and their role right from the get-go had just as much like abby was just as much plot relevant as a doctor and a politician you know in the first season as she was as a mom like she was equally all of those things i mean not to be that person but to me the balance of this episode felt a lot like to me the best of the oc shut up because no, I'm with you. Oh I will God. not fight you on yeah, this. You can because you had such a good balance in that show, especially in the later seasons of the Coens and then the kids. Yes. And so there was so much ground there to cover and they did it beautifully on that show. Yeah. The OC and Gilmore Girls are my two sort of like go to for like a teen show that treats the parents relationships with the same degree of care. Yeah. You know, as they treat the young characters. And and that they are interconnected. With, like, the Cullens were the only characters on the OC that I was, like, deeply invested in because hashtag brand. Yeah. Even, like, even, like, 14 years ago, you know. But, yeah, but I think, I, I think that that's something that there are... The shows that do that are few and far between, but I do think that they tend to be shows that have longevity. Because, like, the thing about, you know, to circle back to Gilmore Girls, like, here's the thing about Gilmore Girls is that... The generation of girls who grew up watching that show, identifying with Rory because that's who was their age, are closer to Lorelai's age now. Mm-hmm. And so if you have if you have these multi-generational casts and you put interest and emphasis into the adults' relationships without sacrificing that balance of parent-kid dynamics... I think those are the things that give a show longevity because it means that you're not just restricted to like that it dates itself and loses any relevance to your life after you're like old and 18 and you're like, oh, wow, Rory was really dumb. (laughs) Like Rory made some bad life choices, you know, and there's nothing better that I love than dragging Rory Gilmore. Oh, my God. Yeah. Love her. Love young Rory. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Reboot Rory. I don't know her. Reboot Rory. Two exploding thumbs down. But yeah, but I, so I think like for me, when I got hooked on this show, really it was Clark and Abby's relationship and then the way that the adult and kids storylines were sort of like counterweight to each other. And I do really feel like I have to say, despite having a lot of frustrations in season three and season four with some of the plot stuff, I think one of the best things that they've done is fleshing out the adult characters. So like adding in Pike, giving more for Indra, deepening like obviously Kane and Abby's relationship which we'll be screaming about it more in a second (laughs) but but really giving them like deeply significant things to do I think it says a lot that this uh most recent episode from what I've been able to see across you know everyone who has their reviews out is one of the most critically acclaimed because there was emotional weight given to everyone yep you know plot issues aside there's a reason that this episode didn't I think rankle as much as some of the others and it's because we got 
equally balanced drama that didn't feel like melodrama because we got really good power struggles between characters that are multi-generational. Yes. Yeah, and I really and I and I felt something. Like I, you know, I I think one of my frustrations with seasons 3 and 4 where where you go these long stretches where you have plot mechanics driving the relationships and driving the character arcs where it's like okay well this character has to do this thing that she'd never do but she has to do it so we can move the chess pieces into place for this thing to happen later so then when that happens and you're just sort of like okay so we're just moving chess pieces around a board i'm not like i don't i don't have an emotional reaction to that so like you can kill off a character and i can straight up not care if the way that you get there it just sort of feels like you know like bellamy and the massacre like i want to care about those grounders but i don't we didn't see them we didn't meet them we had no stakes you know i care more about the idea of like the massacre because we didn't see any of like the actual i feel like we didn't see the fallout of bellamy's decision in the right way no, we didn't at all. And we didn't see the lead up to it. Yeah. You know, we didn't see, we didn't watch him get to that place and then watch him reckon with his choice. It was like a thing happened. And then suddenly it was like, cough, cough. Bellamy, how could you? And then it's like, well, Pike did the, but whatever. Anyway, but that's a season three problem. But that's like, that's emotional apathy with this show. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it makes me, so like, then I just sort of like, then I emotionally disengage. And what I really did feel like with last night's episode, as, as many things about like Clark in particular, and or some characters making choices where I was kind of like, is, is that out of character? But I was deeply, deeply emotionally invested in it. Like I was so, I felt so much, even, even for, even for Jaha, maybe we can, this is a good transition over to Jaha. Like, you know, I love some Jaha. Jaha traditionally has been not my favorite, but over the course of this season, I I have evolved into like a kind of love to hate relationship with like, from the beginning, I was like, okay, this shady motherfucker is up to something. He's playing Clark. He wants to be chancellor again. Like, what is your game, Thelonious? And I do feel a little bit like, I think the narrative shifting back and forth as to whether it is, are we supposed to see it being right or wrong? The kind of leader that Clark is becoming does muddy the waters to me a little bit of like, are we supposed to think that Jaha was a good guy all along? Are we supposed to think that he was being manipulative? I don't like, so some of that is complicated, but even for him, who is my like, no offense to Isaiah, who turned into great performance, like my fourth favorite out of the four, just in terms of like how much I like enjoyed storylines about them. But I felt really, really deeply for him in this episode. And I think that they really let the weight of... You felt for Jaha? I did. I did. I felt, yeah. I And I was, I was surprised at myself. Like I was also furious at him and I wanted Kane to punch him in the face and then lock him in the brig. But good, I... Good, good content. <laughs> but no, but I, I also, not at, I think not at the beginning, like initially, like basically everything from the end of 410 up through the last scene in this episode between him and Kane before they dropped the gas canisters, what I was, I guess, enjoying about the Jaha storyline was that I felt like where we were supposed to have landed with him was that Jaha has has not changed at all and is fully the same like ruthless Jaha that he was on the arc. He's just been playing us the whole time. He's playing us the whole time. I think he's worse than he was on the arc. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk about that more. Okay, so I don't feel anything for Jaha anymore, except for like blind rage. 
because I don't think there's anything redeemable about him anymore because he keeps making these decisions and then not taking any of the responsibility for it and like putting that all on like Clark or Abby or Kane and like they hold the emotional weight of it and he's just like I did nothing wrong you guys ruined everything and it's like no you ruined everything you did this this is all your fault like at the beginning when he's like yelling at them like you've killed like 364 of our people and they got comfortable and they thought they were safe and all of that and then like you can see that affecting Abby and okay dude but the reason they thought they were safe is because you lied to them again because that's your method of leadership is lying to your people and then again later when he is fighting with Kane in the armory he's like how do we get them to stop and I'm like you led them to this you rallied the ringleader down there to like get them to fight and it's like take responsibility for your actions and how you've ruined your people's lives you know what i had not realized that until you said this just now that you're like you're totally right like this is the the classic thing that jaha does that is like the one God, you're so smart. Like the one, like the consistent through line in all of his storylines and all of these, like in every season is that he is forever trying to dodge complicity and consequences yeah. for his choices. I mean, it's Kane and Jaha in season one all over again. It's like, it's, it's your all favorite over thing. again. Yeah. Yeah. It's my favorite thing. Yeah. And, and, you know, and the city of light too, like taking the chip to like avoid having to think about the cost of the choices that he's done, becoming this sort of like fanatical, you know, like alley cult zealot. And then the way that he sort of instantly, the beginning of this season that we saw him with Clark and Bellamy, like watching him totally absolve himself. Yeah. You know, like when was the last time anyone held Jaha accountable for what happened to everyone in the City of Light. Like, it stopped after, like, two episodes in. And, like, the fact that Kane and Abby, the first time you see them is they're saying, like, Kane's like, we'll solve this because we screwed it up together. And I'm like, narratively, that is not the message that you sent through all of season three. No. Why are you absolving him of this when there's so much rich, dramatic ground to cover here? So this is, so this here's where I'm at with, with Jaha regular listeners of Metastation will know that like I I am now like screaming about Jaha is my new Pike apologism like it's my new just like <laughs> thing that I just reliably do every episode because he just It's so fun. Mm-hmm. Well, it is fun. And he also and and what got under my skin immediately was was just that was just what you just said was like are we suddenly supposed to believe like what side is the narrative on? Like how are we supposed to think Jaha's arc is evolving. Are we supposed to feel like, okay, well, he did all these terrible things, but that's in the past. And now look how helpful he's being and blah, blah with the lottery. And he's Clark's right hand and all of this mentorship. Like the thing that really started to make me crazy to the point where both Kim and Jason now have like dragged me to my face for it was like, <laughs> like I was like, I was like screaming. My life is weird. <laughs> my life is very weird. I know. But like, screaming in frustration about like I don't know if I'm supposed to believe that that redemption arc is legitimate or not and so for me where I was like fist pumping with total sheer visceral delight 
at that twist at the end of 410 was I was like, well, now his fucking arc makes sense. It like, all now, makes sense now. Now it clicks into place where both the Clark being the chosen one narrative and the Jaha is a good guy narrative were maybe not actually meant to state that those things were true. Those were like, these are the messages that Jaha is like snakily whispering into Clark's ear. Mm-hmm. My problem with that is that 411 undercut all of what happened at the end of 410. So yep. like if up through the end of 410, it was still like, okay, it like maybe we could have hit those buttons a little harder. Maybe it was like a little too subtle and underplayed. So things seemed like mistakes that might have been sort of a very subtle trail of breadcrumbs. And then what happened in the last episode that, and 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 where I think where 412 I think is also complicated with Jaha is that now suddenly he is the anti-hero. Well, or, or that he, there's, there's, there's gray area now. Like, so, so Clark and Jaha made this decision together, right? So either it's right for both of them or it's wrong for both of them. Like either they did the correct thing or they did the incorrect thing. And the messaging with Clark has been so inconsistent that for me, it bleeds over into how we're supposed to see Jaha. So like, Bellamy forgiving Clark in like two seconds and both Abby and Nyla being used back to back to kind of reassure Clark that she's a good person and that she did the right thing and there was no like there was no like I was saying there was no good choice so like Abby saying like I don't Abby and Bellamy basically deciding we were we were furious with you last episode and now we love you and we forgive you so to me that means okay so the narrative is now saying we can't be mad at Jaha for that either because the narrative has said this actually was the okay like that the choice that they made based on the information they had was supposed to be seen as like well you did your best you know so now i feel like the clark muddiness muddies up how i'm supposed to see jaha so i watched this episode like intentionally watched it like okay if i'm supposed to think jaha is a fundamentally decent man who occasionally makes terrible choices but he's not being set up like I was kind of hoping he was after 410 he's not being set up as a villain then how does this land to me watching it like the like the Jaha he was in season one when he was also Clark's best friend's father and he also had relationships with Clark with Kane and Abby beside like before he sort of became like a crazy person and, and so that did make me actually feel really emotional about that final scene between him and Kane as a way to potentially sort of tie their leadership arcs back together in a way that they really haven't been for most of the season. Like they've sort of shared space in some storylines, but they haven't until the bunker plot really got going. And really until last episode and this episode, we haven't really seen them back in that co-leader butting heads mode and i and i've always been interested in their relationship i think it's i think you can't really understand kane until you understand jaha Mm -hmm. i think my problem right now is i still once again i feel like i sort of don't understand jaha (laughs) but like i did like what i had i felt really emotional about the two of them sort of teaming up together to figure out if there was a way to save the people. But you're totally right, Sam, that it's like, once again, like Jaha behaves like things just happen. And it's like, Jaha, you made the thing happen. 
like he's like well but they're they're all angry and they're chant and they're chanting fight 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 like what's the person supposed to do and it's like well you started it, Jaha. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you wanted Dum Dum. That's your goddamn fault, you know. So I think so, and I hadn't thought of it in that in that context, Sam. But you're totally right that it's like this is this is exactly what he does in all situations, and it doesn't maybe necessarily mean that he is a villain. But this is his like tragic flaw, right? This is like the thing that Jaha can't not do is he makes a terrible thing happen, and then afterwards he's like, guys, what do we do about this terrible thing? And you're just like. Thelonious. It's like, like it's like that Tumblr post that's like, okay, we need to address this problem that I alone started by myself. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't believe you guys are making me eat all this ice cream. Well, no one told you to. Can't believe this. <laughs> it's just like, how dare you? No one told you to do that, but okay. I feel like I would have been more okay with the Clark forgiveness. If they sort of like drew a stronger distinction between where her own decision was and like her own desires and how much it was Jaha's influence. Yeah. Because it's it's so unclear. I there. want in Clark's head at least once. Yeah. I think Aaron Aaron and I, we were talking on the phone just like a little a little while before we recorded, and and that was like I, I totally feel the same way. I, I feel like what I loved about it as a like smash cut to black surprise reveal was that that being a big like <gasps> moment that only works if the secrecy and sneakiness and and deviousness of it is the ongoing fallout. Mm-hmm. And if we are then like like it's the it's the event horizon, it's the line past which we're like Clark, you have gone so far that like we don't even recognize you. So so it has to be like the line, like she's crossed a line from which now there's no going back. But the problem is, is that immediately the like, you know, like within within five minutes at the beginning of the previous episode, we realized like they have radios. She could just call Octavia and get answers to half these questions. Once she realizes that like everything's okay on the other side. And yet she still doubles down. Like, the choices that they make are really puzzling in light of the fact that, like, okay, so you guys could just talk all this out. This could all be over in five minutes. Like, I don't even understand why you're still keeping the doors locked now that you know (laughs) there's not an army of marauders on the other side of it. It's it's just Octavia being like, hey, come open the door, you know. Well, that's that's because Jaha still held those 300 other people above the 1,100 other grounders. Right. No, yeah. exactly. But I'm saying, but I think, but then the problem is that that's a, that's a different problem. Like Clark and Jaha kept saying, if we open the doors, everyone's going to die. And it's like, I don't understand why you think that. Like, because that was before they knew, like that was before they, you know, figuring out about like sharing the bunker. Like it was, I, I think if they had flipped it to like, okay, so now the problem is if we open the doors then we are, you know, giving into Octavia's plan and we have to kill off three quarters of our people. Like if they had started in last episode with what became this episode's moral problem, which is like the culling aspect of it, then I think that makes more sense. But I feel like Clark and Jaha last episode were playing it like we open the doors and everyone dies and it's all out war. And this oh, way, yeah. at least some of humanity survives. And that was, and that was totally not true. And then we got this sort of mild little retcon in the Nihilus scene about it being related to 
who's going to run the technology. But that didn't seem like a concern for Jaha at all. No. And that was the thing that I bought the most, actually, with Jaha in these episodes, is that Jaha is both someone who is very determined to save everyone, but inherently has, like, a survival instinct that probably rivals only Murphy. Yeah. And that's interesting. Like, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to mine there. And I just feel like, I think that that it became so immediately muddy that I was like, okay, well, now if this is how they're playing it, now I feel like I do need to see how he persuaded Clark. Where before I felt like, no, I was okay with it being a surprise because, because the shock of it was clearly supposed to be like how the story unfolded. But if the core of the story is Clark wrestling with this moral decision, then it's like either either she and Jaha were a united front and they did a terrible thing and the story is about the fallout of that and her realizing that she's crossed the line. Or the story is about her kind of waffling and angsting back and forth and what do I do and what do I want to do and blah, 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 blah. And then in that case, it's like, well, now I feel like I really need to see. It's like the election episode. Like, I need to see how you were persuaded Mm -hmm. to make this out of character decision, not just because it's plot relevant, but because that's how you make the case to the audience. Like, that's how Clark is not a villain to the audience, if we understand that. And And they think that kind of got railroaded right past it but I did but I really did try intentionally to watch this episode of like if the story wants me to think that Jaha is like a a a fundamentally decent but with major flaws leader who has undergone some kind of a redemption arc and is not a villain how how does that look but it's just all over the place. You know, it's been it it was building somewhere really clean up to the end of episode 10. And now I'm kind of just like and I don't know where he goes from here because now we know Isaiah is not coming back next season as a regular. So I don't know if that means he dies in the finale or if he dies early in season five or if they keep him on as a guest star. And it's just sort of like he's here raising that small child and he's always in the other room. I don't know. You know, like, I don't know what they do with him. I just like I have a lot of question marks. I made this as a throwaway joke on the aficionados. And now I haven't been able to stop thinking about it since then. And this is something that Sarah has talked about. Everyone's favorite Twitter user, Oscar Mike, is Jaha is basically like the pike of this season. They needed someone to be inherently anti-grounder slash anti-unity. And so they put that on Jaha. But if you go back and you rewrite the 316 finale and Octavia doesn't stab Pike, she stabs Jaha, every single thing about this season would make sense. I, I felt on a very deeply visceral level, and, and we said this on, on the finale podcast last season, mm-hmm. it felt narratively right to me that the destruction of the City of Light which had been Jaha's whole story for two full seasons that he would die when the city of light got shut down. Like that just like, even, even if Octavia didn't stab him and it was some alley in his brain, whatever, like I, but, but it felt like this is how his arc should end was that he went all in on this thing that backfired horribly, caused all this destruction. And so the choice to, after Pike, 
who had sort of been through and come out the other side of a very nicely executed mini redemption arc where it really felt like they were moving Pike into a direction of, you know, like truce with Indra, like recentering his relationship with Kane, you know, like putting him back on the side of his people, like him seeing the things that he was wrong about. Like I, I think there's a lot of, of what's in season four that I, in some way, I think I would kind of rather have seen with Pike learning how to share space with Grounders. The one thing that I will say that makes it feel like that that wouldn't necessarily play with the Jaha thing is the cult stuff. And maybe we'll never get any more of that. But like Pike is way too straightforward and no nonsense and level headed to a I mean, to have to know anything or to give a shit about someone like Bill Cadigan or to sort of adopt the kind of zealot mindset that made Jaha's arc of the story possible. But even that, even even the Cadigan stuff, which I was super interested in as part of Jaha's story at the beginning, has now been totally dropped. And I'm not sure. I'd assume at some point it's coming back, but we don't know. And you could believably do that with Pike by, because I remember Jaha saying to Kane, you know, I know this bunker exists because this is what I would do as a leader. Exactly. And yeah. so it becomes less about that zealous faith and more about, well, politically, this is this is my Mount Weather. Yeah. So if you had Pike in that role, you can see how you could get to the same destination with both of those characters. But with Pike, I would believe it more because, I mean, it's the sort of same power struggle between Clark and Jaha that it was between Pike and Bellamy, where they're supposed to be having like this influence over these teenagers. But we don't see that influence. We only really see the outcome of it and 300 people die because of it. And it's sort of treading back over the same plot ground, but this time it's happening to Clark and it's happening in a way that we we have to do so much mental gymnastics to, to justify. Yeah, we really do. So with Jaha, his story has very neatly ended twice on this show already. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Let him go! <laughs> When he when he was gone at like the end of season one, I was like, "Wow, Isaiah Washington did a great job." Sad to see him go, and then he shows up in season two, and I'm like, "What?" <laughs> yeah, and and I do feel like you know one of the things that I that I really liked about season three, like one of the things that I really felt like top to bottom worked was that I actually thought the the sort of slow burn three season arc of Jaha from principled but like ruth ruthless but basically fundamentally decent arc chancellor in the beginning of season one to the big bad at the end of season three i actually loved i loved that arc i thought it was one of the best things that they've ever done because it was so gradual because he was jaha the whole time it played on all of these like reliably jaha traits so it felt really rooted in like the reality of you know, of who he is, who he was. And, you know, and so it really felt like, okay, this is a nice organic way to kind of stitch up his arc. Um, and I, and I do, I do feel both with Jasper and I think with Jaha at the beginning of this season, like it feels to me like they went into season four without necessarily having a super clear idea of like, what's the story we're going to tell with this character? Because it has been a little, you know, with Jasper, it was kind of like, our story is that he's going to commit suicide. And at the end of the season, he will commit suicide. 
And there was no divergence from that, you know. There was also no look into Jasper's head to see where his headspace was at, but like. No, and it wasn't about Maya anymore. It wasn't about anything. And with Jaha, I feel like they did, I think they slotted him into some stuff that like might have fit Pike better. They bring in all of this kind of Cadigan mythology stuff, which is really awesome, and then drop it for seven episodes and it hasn't really come back. Except I guess as it's the path that led us to the bunker. But if that's all that Bill Cadigan was in the story for, that's totally unsatisfying to me. We got cheaped out of another adult. Yeah, and <laughs> and of and of a major piece of world building. You know, of like a huge piece of of the lore of the origin story of grounder mythology, you know, like of, of how their society came to be. So, mm-hmm. and maybe that's the season five, like maybe, maybe Cadigan in season four is the way the early mentions of Mount Weather were in season one, where it, it exists mostly to sort of tease us for what like the big reveal is going to be. I don't know, but. I feel like that's part of it because um, there was a lot of language around that in the uh, Upfronts release for season five. Wait, what up, friends? Really? Yeah, I haven't seen that. What? What are you talking about? Oh my god, where have you two been? Oh, I have an excuse. What's Claire's excuse? I don't know. I've been on the internet all day. I haven't seen this. Oh my god, hold on, I'll find it. Okay, read it to us. Sam's like, guys, hold up. I've literally been on Twitter like every single minute since I woke up. I saw it in fool. I saw it in Slack and on Tumblr. So hold on. Wait. So let me let me get this straight. You saw the season five summary and you didn't immediately think, group chat. Yeah. You fool. I have been in like 75 group chats all day. Um, excuse you. If you're trying to pretend that you're not always in our group chat first, you are so fake. You guys were asleep. Brittany, honestly, Brittany, I think this is, this is a breakup worthy offense. I think. Yeah. Oh my God. I think this relationship has no future. Sam, we had a good run. <laughs> oh my god! Don't hold on to Things it. Things have been nice. Okay, 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 okay. You really okay, pretty. I found it. You did us dirty, so you guys, please love me. I'm sorry. Okay, I will. I will love you again once you read us the upfront description. Watch it be the most vague thing in the whole world. It is, but I there's a line that I've decided means Cabby is getting married. So anyway, here we go. Shut up! <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> All right, for four seasons, the hundred have fought to survive. That fight has torn them apart, turned them against each other, and taken the lives of their closest friends. Season four introduced our heroes to the harshest, to the harsh truth that the human race is doomed to face an unbeatable enemy. The remaining nuclear reactors on Earth have melted down and are set, setting the atmosphere on fire. Our heroes had very little time to prepare for the worst, and with every possible solution disappearing almost as quickly as they were able to come up with them. Full offense, I did not like that. With a literal countdown to the end of the world, our heroes will have will be forced to go to unimaginable lengths to make it out alive, with or without each other. In the aftermath of Prime Fire, they must begin again, and with Season 5, our heroes will have to examine their responsibility to the new place they will call home and the future generations who will inhabit it. Can they begin again and celebrate what remains, or will the frailties of human nature cost them their one chance to rise from the ashes? Based on the book by Cass Morgan, da 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 da, et cetera, et cetera. Executive producers, Future Generations, and Leslie Morgenstein. Yeah, so Future Generations, Cabby Baby. Um, celebrate what remains Cabbie Wedding. Listen, (laughs) 
<laughs> they need to get the hell out of the bunker and they need to start having babies. Okay, guys, are we ready for the thing that is the reason we are all gathered here at our microphones this evening? Both here and in life. Yes. Yep. Mm -hmm. Is it time to yell about Cabby? Oh, hell yeah. It's always time to yell about Cabby. Uh, That is incredibly accurate. That is a very vivid description of our lives. Yeah. The, the basis of, like, our entire friendship is... Our entire friendship. Hey, oh, you, yeah, yeah. you, you want to talk about these two fictional characters? Yeah? Okay. Do I? <laughs> <laughs> Only the most. I mean, that is how we met. That is how we met. That is true. Um. So, Samantha, let's start with you. Please express in any degree of squee flail <laughs> you would like your <laughs> thoughts and feelings about the cabbie in this episode. So it was a lot. Apparently, he didn't know she was sick. And I don't know how I feel about that. Because one, had she told anyone? Had Jackson told anyone? Has they scanned her brain at all? Has she had a seizure? Is she still having symptoms? Is Has anything happened to her at all? What an excellent list of questions. (laughs) What an excellent list of questions we will not get the answers to. So I'm like really curious as to why they brought it back up now. If like they gave us the option to have like her brain healing itself or whatever. Is there a reason they brought it up in this episode so that it can come back in the next episode? And it's like, oh, it's not her brain. Or is it that they're going to have to find a new way to cure Abby? Or what? Well, it's not a 100 season finale if Abby's not in some kind of mortal danger that we stress about to the point of, like, yelling at each other. That is the one finale trend I can 100% do without. Please take this back to the kitchen. This is not what I ordered. (laughs) Stole my joke! (laughs) (laughs) I stole it and I'm going to edit out you saying that was your joke because I have all the power. I will tweet it! That's so mean! (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) My pod, my rules. (laughs) Crap. So anyway, that's just from the first three seconds in which they interact. Uh... (laughs) So then... The first three seconds in how many episodes again? Uh, ten. Right. <laughs> Literally ten. Literally ten. Let's talk about that first scene. Maybe we should do the scene by scene. Scene by scene? Yeah, that's okay. a good idea. First of all, maybe this is a good place to reveal that the three of us have been united since, actually since before Abby got sick, we were talking about this, about the possibility that Abby could be pregnant this season. We had to sell you on this, though. We did. When they say sell me out, they mean two different things. I mean, first of all, I was violently anti the idea of Abby having a baby. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I don't like baby thick and I don't like baby head cannons or any of that kind of stuff. But over the course of this season, <laughs> but- when it began to seem like I actually genuinely was like, wait, what if this is possible? Then suddenly I was like, wait a minute. I'm actually like, 
am I on board with this? And actually, this was before she got, before mm-hmm. any of the Abby Six stuff, because I remember, because when we when we did the Claire's crazy conspiracy wall pregnancy theory <clears throat> meditation outtake. Still my favorite outtake. Blessed. What triggered that one for me was, and I still, and I actually feel like this is something that could come back, was that it was about um, the Abby and Bellamy parallels on the idea of there being a 101st stowaway when they talk about the original 100. Mm-hmm. And that is definitely something that could come back into play this time, is that they're like, okay, we have 100 people, they fill Clark and Bellamy and Raven's slots when they realize they're not coming back and then it's like we have a hundred people or do we is abby pregnant and it certainly is a theory that is a lot more attractive because it actually could compellingly explain away the illness symptoms without her you know brain being whatever it's our comfort theory but also a theory that we've bought into so hard that i genuinely believe it yeah Yeah, i i i mean i 100% feel like this actually like like we could be secret geniuses and everyone will bow down to our wisdom <laughs> or alternately somewhere Jason Rothenberg is just snort laughing at like how wildly off base we have been all season and how much screaming about this I have done already. Like, which is fine because that mental image is also hilarious. That's yeah. true. That's also a good mental image. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine with it either way. Hi, Jason. Hi, Jason. Hi. So to your question, Sam, about like, why, after letting it drop for like half a dozen episodes, bring back to the forefront and then immediately drop again the mention of Abby's brain? I have two thoughts on it. So mm-hmm. so the the plot points that they very carefully hammered home for us are one, like like Sam said, the most important of them is that um, Kane didn't know. And to a certain degree, I believe, I think we're meant to assume he still doesn't know. Because they never talked about it, and then she was unconscious, and they and they didn't finish their conversation ever. So he still doesn't really know what's happening. That's thing A. Thing B is reminding us, which I'm really, really glad that they did, that Raven remembers that Abby is sick, and Raven is no less committed to making sure Abby gets cured than she was of herself getting cured. So that's obviously going to be complicated by the fact that Raven isn't coming home. So I think what this is setting up, which can maybe tie both of those things together and also play into this again, sort of weirdly out of character, but maybe is going somewhere. Abby kind of randomly losing her desire to live and to fight for some reason, um, which we can get into more in a second. But what I wonder is if bringing that back in the first scene and in a way that's really about Abby and Raven like, Kane was not super engaged in that scene, really. It sort of almost immediately sort of took a side turn. It's the plot before relationship syndrome? Yeah, totally, yeah. Plot driving character. Um, because, like, in what world would Kane not immediately have been like, no, finish that sentence. Explain to me what you mean. Yeah. But I, I think bringing it back in, in this way makes me feel like how it's going to come back into the finale is, is Raven going to have to, like long distance over the radio coach Jackson or Abby through this procedure in a way that makes it a lot more risky and dangerous and high stakes. And maybe it's going to be about Kane thinking that she's going to die or something like goes wrong or it takes her too long to wake up. And then Kane thinks that he's like watching the woman that he loves die, blah, 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 whatever. Okay, Satan. Roll well, a no, I mean, I'm just saying. It's so true like, though. But I think it may be 
Abby needs to rediscover her will to fight and live in a similar kind of parallel way. Like if it is the brain thing, if baby theory is wrong and she really does have the same brain thing, despite us never having seen any other symptoms of it, except Mm -hmm. the one hallucination, zero seizures. Still not convinced that wasn't just a dream, just for the record. Oh, no, totally. I I mean, because, because she never had a seizure... Like, if she was as sick as Raven, who at that point was having seizures, like like Becca said, four times a day, there's literally no way that she could have hid this from Kane for even the, like, six hours or whatever that they've been together. Yeah. And also, Clark, Murphy, Amori, Miller, and Jackson all know, in addition to Raven you know, how sick she is. So she can't have been presenting any symptoms while she and Jackson and all the rest of them were together or somebody would have said something and like Kane would have known. So my guess is it's going to become about, like if the baby theory is wrong, it's going to be about maybe she has her first seizure or something bad happens the next episode that reminds her that she does want to live, that she does want to fight, that sort of snaps her out of this kind of survivor's guilt mindset that she's in. And then it becomes about, in addition to having to get the rocket ready in 10 hours before she shoots off into space, Raven has to, you know, teach Jackson or teach somebody else through the radio how to do this procedure on Abby, which increases the risk that something could go wrong in a like high stakes angsty way. And I will say like, I, I mean, I definitely like 100%, I don't think Kane and Abby are going to die, but I do think that leaving that a cliffhanger, like if they revive Abby at the beginning of season five or something like that, like I could see that happening. Like I could see it being like to create additional angst, like the, you know, she flatlines and then Jackson and Kane are standing there being like, oh, no, oh, no. And there's at the end of the bunker storyline and we cut back to what's going on with Clark. Like, then, I can like, totally you flash see them forward being that five evil. years and you still don't know. <sighs> this is my flash forward theory is I think that like I think it could end with like. Clark and everyone else coming back to the bunker and either like it's empty or something random like or like Roan's there. Rowan is alive. <laughs> but I totally think that they could, even if they follow through with the time jump and everyone comes back to the bunker, that it could happen in some kind of a way where we still don't know if Abby survived and, and that we won't know until, you know, Paige starts tweeting and we can geotag it to Vancouver. <laughs> that's, that's like my exact theory, though, is like you they brought back the plot line because it's coming up to finale you need to start worrying about the fates of all the characters and they do this every season where everyone kind of goes oh is abby gonna make it this season and she's such an easy person to hinge like a death prediction on but if you look at the trend of the finales over the you know all three seasons so far they don't leave the adults in suspense. The cliffhanger's always like True. something else. And there's always an opportunity to leave them in suspense. But they don't do it. Like, there's season one, they could have not shown them landing. But they did. And they're fine. Um, season two, Abby and Kane are just Walking back into camp like it ain't no thing. That's the moment we all sold our souls to. Yeah. <laughs> and then season three, like they could could have like not had them reunite, which would have devastated me. But they didn't. 
And they, they have that great hug and it was fine. So what I'm thinking is they're going to wake up Abby sometime in this episode and then the next one. And they're going to have like some kind of, you know, thing to deal with. But I don't think they're going to leave it whether we think she's dead or not. See, Sam's the group optimist. Claire and I will like spiral each other and Sam's just sitting there in the driver's seat like, well, y'all shut up. I'm trying to drive. Well, so here's so let me let me take Sam's thing and ruin it with more angst. But why? (laughs) Because I agree. I think I think it's actually I they they, and, and not even just with the adults, but like in in general, they tend to stitch up most of the season's whole plot with the exception of maybe leaving a Clark thing hanging as carryover and setting up whatever the conflict is going to be for the next season. But they, but they do, I think take pretty seriously sort of like wrapping up loose story ends. So if the angst is not, is Abby dead question mark? What if I hate myself? What if the angst is that Abby can't forgive Kane for what he did? That's not Clara. Clara, I feel like I'm having to chastise like a bad dog. Like, <laughs> stop that. Honestly, Claire is like canceled right now. Um, I mean, not like she's never, not that she's never gonna forgive him. I'm just saying, like, the way the gas cans work, like you know what's happening yeah. as it's happening to you. She knows exactly what he did, and she and she told him like, and she was very like she was wrong. That they need her. She's essential personnel. She's the only doctor. She can't leave Jackson responsible for all of this. But like, she told him what she wanted, and she said her goodbyes to him and to Clark. So like, what if she wakes up and the like crisis that they find themselves in is like. Now she's really mad at him. Like maybe it's like an amplified version of Bellamy waking up after. No. Yes. Oh my God. No. This is what it is. No. It's Bellamy waking up and realizing what Clark did, but like times a billion. No. Because okay, like listen, no. she was she was ready to die. See, the whole flaw in this plan is that we believe that they would dedicate any length of time to that kind of like storyline for them. When in reality, we're going to get, like, two minutes. Yeah, like, they don't have time to, like, draw that out. They're going to listen. I'd be here for that angst, though, like, for the record. No, me too. dirty and wrong. I want it for fanfic purposes. That's all I'm saying. Thank God, yes. Like, no, I would... I would be fine with it, but as, but I need it resolved before the finale. <laughs> Sam... I, I can't... You broke her. I can't go an entire hiatus thinking that they broke up. Okay. I can't go an entire hiatus thinking that Abby has fallen into depression and she hates Kane and thinks Clark is... No. No. I refuse. (laughs) You made her so mad. She's going to be mad when she wakes up, but then, like, she's going to realize that he was right and it's going to be a great parallel to um, 309. And the I thought I told you not to do this, and they're they're gonna kiss, and it's gonna be fine. Oh, that's so much oh, better! Oh, I like that. Oh, I want it. I 
want that. Okay, yeah, I want, I'm canceling my order. I want your thing. Okay, but then also, <laughs> like, you see Bellamy and Octavia talking to each other on radio. So, like, yeah, yeah. if we're supposed to believe that part of the reason that Abby wanted to die was because she thought Clark was dying, a five-second conversation, not even with Abby and Clark, but with Bellamy and Octavia, where someone passes along to Abby, yeah, Clark's alive and she's going into space, but she's alive. That kind of... Wraps that yeah. right up. Well, and also, you, you know what we haven't had is we haven't had a devastatingly heartbreaking mother-daughter, may we meet again, we will. So I bet that regardless of whatever happens with like, is Raven on the radio with Jackson and the whole, and the ice bath and the EMP and the how are they going to fix Abby's brain or whatever. I think, I think we're going to get a Clark and Abby moment where she realizes that like, that there is a way for Clark to be safe. You know, like it's risky, but like that they might, you know, this is a way for them to maybe survive, but then they'll be apart for five years and then they're going to say, may we meet again. And then we're all going to cry. <laughs> that tracks. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like if we're, if we have the Blakes talking to each other, saying goodbye, we're going to get like the Griffins too. And that's also an important reminder that like, like even just in that little slice that we got in the trailer, that there will, will be stakes for the storyline in the bunker about this space thing. Mm hmm. At the very least with with Octavia and and Bellamy, but probably with the Griffins and also with Kane. Like maybe this is how Kane and the Blakes and their kind of complicated relationship. Like maybe we get like a Kane and Bellamy goodbye. Like maybe this is a little sort of like all the kind of like family stuff. Oh, my heart. Knowing that they're not going to see each other for five years. I know. This makes sense. And I prefer this to anything else. So it is law. Yeah. So like or Jason? or we prefer it so it probably is not what's going to happen. You're like okay, but we live in a beautiful bubble right now. Let's stay in the bubble. That's true. Until next Wednesday at 9 p.m. we live in a world where <laughs> I I've been a, like a little upset with the lack of cavy reunion. That's fine. But like consistently I feel like I we haven't been let down like as a fandom like for Kane or Abby, like overall, I so hate that you're right. I have yeah. faith that they that Jason won't break my heart. I actually I agree with you. I think my cabby frustrations over the course of the season. I have two big ones. Yeah, and I and I do feel like in like to be charitable, I feel like they were plot motivated and they sort of did the best they could around those things, even though I still find them frustrating. The big one of which is separating them for essentially 10 of 13 episodes. But I do think that they they did have some nice moments where we we got to experience that separation as a meaningful thing in their relationship instead yeah. of it just sort of being like they're they're in separate storylines so they don't interact. And then the second of which is that I still don't really know. Like, I'd love to ask Jason. We're trying to get Jason back uh, over the hiatus. I want to ask him, like, what does Jason think Kane's arc was? Yeah. Because overall, my sort of macro frustration with this season, and I think Kane is like the best, like clearest crystallized example of it, is I think this season has had some like series high quality 
character moments and performances and plot twists and visual sequences and like some truly like stellar outstanding moments that don't all hang together where it sort of feels like everyone was sort of assigned an episode and they went and wrote their episodes and then they came back and Jason kind of put them in order and then they hit go. And not necessarily that there was like a cogent through line for all of them. And so with Kane, I feel like, like individually, his scene with Bellamy in the Black Rain, like the radio stuff with him and Bellamy in the Rover, that beautiful little moment between him and Clark with the like, I'll send her your love and their hug. The the Kane and Abby ever. stuff in tonight's episode, all the Cabby stuff, the Jake stuff in episode two, like oh, okay. blessed yes. by the Jake stuff. Oh my god, like like so he's had some some moments that are some of the best individual like like Kane's relationships with other characters, moments of depth with all those relationships like we've never seen before, mm-hmm. like Kane and Octavia, Kane and Bellamy, Kane and Abby, Kane and Clark. Kane and the kids, like all Kane and Harper, you know, all of these like beautiful moments. And yet, if you step back and you're like, okay, what is Kane's journey from the beginning of season four to the end of season four? I feel like I can get there, but I feel like I have to work really hard to get there because there were long stretches where I was like, I feel like you're just existing. Somebody needed to say this line and we're going to give it to Kane to be the person who says it. I agree with you that it's like very murky, um, like overall what his arc was supposed to be, but it feels like it became a little bit clearer to me in this week's episode um, because of that mm-hmm. final I actually, scene with I agree. Jaha. Yeah. Because yeah. the whole season, they're sort of telling you that Kane's style of leadership and his like goal of peacekeeping and like maintaining their souls and like all the things that all the beautiful things that Abby like taught him to be as a leader um and like brought out in him the narrative is like repeatedly telling you that that doesn't work in this dire apocalypse with a month to live and then in this week's episode Jaha like repeatedly goes wrong Finally, in the end, Kane is the one that comes up with the solution that actually works. And Kane is the one that comes up with, like, the most humane thing, even though it still kind of, like, devastates him to, like, have to do that. So it's it's sort of, like, a, that it got flipped on its head. Like, they tried to tell you whole, the whole season that... Kane's philosophy didn't work and then right here at the last minute they're like wait a minute keep your souls don't be terrible be like Kane I actually I totally agree I, yeah. I think this was this was the episode where I felt like okay if this was where it was going it does help stitch some of those pieces together because it did really feel like it was it was starting to feel actually like really really disheartening 
watching like with every successive episode it was like what can we destroy or take away from Marcus Kane today mm-hmm. so it it was everything from like the home that he and Abby worked so hard to build in Arcadia Don't talk to me about his relationship Arcadia. with Bellamy his relationship with Octavia like being separated from Abby for so long he was the one that built the first piece with the grounders through Lexa he was the one that built peace with the grounders again through Roan so it was like thing after thing you know and then he gets kidnapped and left behind or left to die or locked outside and so it felt like it's like god like the constant like Indra turns on him like everything you know everything that he has built since he landed on the ground has been in some way like over the course of this season taken away or turned into a failure or destroyed and and, and so I think that's side by side with kind of like the ascendance of Jaha as like not the chancellor but as kind of like Clark's right hand and the person who like who does know because he's so crafty and tactical and manipulative like who does have the ability to kind of like keep the crowd in line and so I started to kind of wonder like is this is what they're doing with Kane like undermining the story that it always felt like the show was telling which is that the leaders who are doing it right are the leaders who do support peace and diplomacy and um and unity and things like that because all we see is Kane doing it over and over again and getting punched in the face and so I feel like it was really important in this episode and it and it meant a lot to me like on an emotional level as devastating as it was that like Kane is the only person who could have made happen what happened in this episode. He's the only person who could have gotten through to Jaha and he's the only person that could be there like left standing in the middle of that room full of bodies that would get Octavia and Indra to put their swords down. And and so like the cost that it has on him like watching watching Ian's beautiful perfect face just crumple oh, as he's like I, I mean, just like, I cried the first time I watched it again and I was like crying just as hard. I was like, this is just, this is honestly, I think, I think this is like a series best performance from Ian, this episode, like hands so down, good. I think. Mm-hmm. But I feel like it was really important that like, it wasn't an easy solution. It wasn't a clean solution. People are still going to die, but it was a non-war solution. Like I hesitate to say, to say non-violent because he did gas people and leave them to their death without their consent but he found the only way to do it without bloodshed yeah and without risking sky crew losing everything because like the thing the point he was trying to make to jaha was like they would kill them all yeah the mere act of arming themselves to fight Yeah. yeah like it like octavia was super clear like if they fight back they're out of the bunker like it's non-negotiable so if she had opened the door and seen them chanting, fight, 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 even if no one had attacked one of the grounders, she would have been like, fine, like, you all die. Yeah. You know, you're all out. And Jaha's solution, like, Jaha pushed to the brink of, like, recklessness to, like, I'm going to gas the grounders and then we're going to hold the food hostage, you know, like that, like, which is, which is a very, like, it's a very Jaha move. Mm-hmm. And so for Kane to be able to, like, get through to him in that in that just incredibly raw and heartfelt way by reminding him like he did save his people like he's the person who found the bunker they would never have found it if he wasn't obsessed with cults you know like no one else was crazy enough to find bill cadigan's bunker so like he does deserve credit for that like he did what he Mm -hmm. wanted to do he saved his people and like and so him telling him like you forfeit 
all of that. Like, you give up all of that redemption, all of that goodness, like, all of that, that moral victory if you basically fuck it all up for us by going <laughs> to war with my daughter Octavia. And and so I think it's just really wonderful that it was like only Kane could have done that. If you look at it in the context of like a season long beating down and then rebirth of him as a leader, if you think about it in the context of Clark, it actually seems like a more successful way of accomplishing Clark's story is through Kane. So they've been constantly isolating Clark, you know, since season three and building her up and saying, here's your solution. She's going to lose her solution. She has to keep trying to uh, save their people and then failing. And like, that's been Clark's whole storyline for like two seasons. It's just, she can't accomplish it. She's on her own. And so if you put that in the context of that's Kane all this season is he keeps trying to save people and he keeps failing. It's a very Griffin move for him to see, to literally look at it and go, there has to be another way. Oh, yeah. So it's like a micro story of Clark's that has far more success in its subtlety because when you pushed Kane to the edge, he found the third solution, the third solution, just like Abby in season one, and just like Clark, you know, literally every time Clark comes up with a problem. You know, you're so right, because that is such, that's such a Clark maneuver. Like, he totally went, like, Griffin Slytherin for mm-hmm. a minute. Yeah. And it's such a return to, like, his season one self without putting his season one morals back there because Kane in season one was a very isolated character who's who believed that like he ruled on his own and he had to learn to accept the fact that Abby always had another solution so you fast forward to season four they're putting him back in the same position but this time he's learned so much that he's solving problems on another higher level that people like Jaha can't get to because they have an agenda, whereas Kane doesn't have that agenda. That's, you're totally right. And that's actually like the thing that I've really enjoyed about Kane's arc that I think that short of this episode, I think it was the Black Rain one that really brought that home is, I think it's actually hugely important and, and overdue and much needed, like, to show this cane, to show season four, you know, ground cane with his beard and his 400 children and his wife and his like- Peak lumberjack. Peace lumberjack, yes. To show him having to reckon with who he was before, mm-hmm. you know? And and what I, like the reason that I know that, I know the, the cabbie fandom was sort of divided and a lot of people were very pissed at Bellamy, but I loved that the the- the heat in that exchange between him and Bellamy about like, you know, I'm proud of you. Your mother will be too. And Bellamy saying you floated my mother and Kane having to face the fact that like, he wants so badly no longer to be that guy. Like he wants so badly not to be the person that he was on the arc. And I think maybe, and this is where I feel like it's like, it's there if you squint and I really like it. And I wish it had been clearer and stronger that his arc over the course of season four was taking, like, the pacifist, like, the sort of pure pacifist he was in season three, the counterweight to to Pike that he was, taking that that cane and merging him with all the sort of previous versions of himself into this much kind of messier and more complicated and more three-dimensional version of, of who he is, where it's like, 
you know, the reason that he's the person that Abby can call for murder advice, you know, like, (laughs) like the reason that he can, that he can talk to her with like moral credibility about like, here's how it will feel is because of who he was on the arc. Mm-hmm. It's because of being season one Kane and remembering what that felt like. And so I feel like, I think that's part of why I felt I felt more warmly towards Jaha in this episode than I have in a long time, because it felt like the relationship between Kane and Jaha that existed on the arc, that at so many times, especially when like Jaha was facing death or like around the culling, that bond was occasionally really deeply moving it's like that, but minus that kind of toxic Jaha being the person telling Kane who Kane really is sort of aspect to it that I really like. Like, I like, like, what does a partnership between them look like now that Kane is the one in charge and that Kane has Abby's influence sort of shaping who he's become rather than Jaha's and yet still realizing that, like, Jaha has skills that he needs and can use but they're still really different leaders and i but i like that i just think it's so important that it was kane's leadership at the end of the day that won like it was kane's way of doing things that saved sky crew and that like all of those decisions were made knowing intrinsically that he had abby on his team Yes. In season one, like, you don't have that. Like, Kane's making all of these decisions. He doesn't have any backup. And so you go to season four, and you know that every move that Kane makes, he has someone behind him backing him up the same way that Abby has that person in him. So they constantly have a built-in support system that gives us, the audience, like, more, or gives them credibility for us that the decisions that they're making are not the wrong ones. Whereas Jaha doesn't have that. He doesn't have any of those emotional connections that tie us to him, that make us feel emotional about him. Kane and Abby have that with each other. And so we, they're our heroes and we get to watch them influence each other so much. The only problem is now, of course, that now that Abby's gone down the road that Kane went down in season one, Kane now has to be the Abby for Abby. I think this is a good place to transition to their next scene, um, especially with like yes. talking about his past and the whole, and then the you save me line and then Abby's new direction and their role reversal um, stuff. Yes. Share your thoughts. Okay. <laughs> um, so there's a lot to unpack in that one scene. So let's start with how we feel about him saying that she saved him um and like not just because of the door um so so emotional over the all all four seasons abby's been like saving kane from the beginning and like turning him into a better person over the last like each season he becomes a better person because of her um, and then there's also times when she's like literally f- physically saved him, like um, two thirteen when they were in Ton DC. Yep. And like he's done it for her too, but in more the physical way than like changing her personality until this season. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's sort of become a role rever- reversal, which I think is uh, important. Where you guys brought up 
like his past being able to like counsel her through the things that she did on the island. And I think that's going to be really important when she wakes up because he's going to need to be the one that gets her to forgive herself because he's been there and she got him to forgive himself. Mm -hmm. I think you're totally right. And and what I'm really rooting for, because we got, we got so many really beautiful visual and, and dialogue pulling parallels. I mean, and, and, and Kane even, he got, even kind of calls it out directly during the, like, during the ballot scene where he says, like, this is like the culling. Like, some people have to die so other people can live. Like, that's, you know, like, like it was very clearly sort of laid out. And so we got the, like, you know, in, in addition to both the sort of the visual of, like, Kane walking amongst the bodies, sort of echoing Abby, you know, walking amongst the bodies in Section 17, we also got that, I don't know who I am anymore. I think that that parallel to you know, Cain falling apart after the culling, it was like that, you know, for, for who he was then, Vera was the only person that was close enough that he could let somebody see him show that vulnerability. And so I think, you know, I think with, with Clark gone, you know, I think for Abby, Cain is the person, like Cain is going to have to give Abby the kind of comfort and reassurance that, you know, that his mom get like his, you know, cause Abby is his family now. Like that's, you know, that's who they are to each other. And, and what she needs to hear in this moment is the same thing that he needed to hear, which is that like, the important thing is like, you have to learn to forgive yourself. Like this isn't about you objectively being by some measure a bad or a good person. This is about how you like get up in the morning and keep going, you know? And so I, I think, I think there's a lot of potential there for like a really beautiful, call back to that moment with him yeah like him serving in that role that vera was for him but also that she that abby has been for him so many times if the if the motivation for her making this kind of weirdly out of character like why don't i just die decision in this episode if the reason for that is to springboard them into a, a reversal like this where he gets to be the person who reminds her who she is and who reminds her why he loves her then i'm all for it like i can totally be brought on board Let's discuss the I love you. Oh, my God. A moment in the making, but not how we thought it would go. No. Like. I loved it, though. Yeah, it was wonderful. But I need him to say it back next week. He sort of indirectly said it first, but to Clark <laughs> instead yeah. of to Abby. Yeah. And we, and we don't know. We don't actually know because we never saw it happen on screen if Clark actually was like, by the way, Marcus Kay loves, loves you. you. Yeah. You're like, I don't know if y'all are there yet, but now you are. <laughs> Sorry, this is awkward. Like, I don't know if you guys are like in that place, if you like have like the talk, but he's definitely in love with you. So Like in the bye. middle of like the apocalypse and stuff, like, ma. I think he loves you. <laughs> Do I have a new dad now? <laughs> oh uh, yes, she does because they hugged and it was so beautiful. So the thing that I thought was both really beautiful and just totally devastating, when you look side by side at Abby saying I love you to the two most important people in her life as she thinks she's saying goodbye to them. It's so beautiful and so heartbreaking to kind of like look at those moments in tandem. You know, like she's sending Clark mm -hmm. off, you know, like hoping that Clark will be okay, having faith that if Clark makes it back, you know, like Kane said, like there's a spot saved for, you know, for Clark in the bunker, um, that Bellamy will take care of her, that, you know, Clark's going to be okay. But, but I think believing, I think already at that 
early point in in the episode, maybe considering, even if maybe she doesn't decide it until after that just devastating scene with the Millers. Speaking of the MVPs of Team Adults, David Miller got some really, really emotionally destroying me content in this episode. Oh, I was real worried we were going to lose Dad Miller for a second there. We did lose Dad Miller. We did lose Dad Miller, dummy. Yeah, but like, but like, not for sure. They dragged him out. They dragged him away. He put Nate's name in the bowl and the grounders came to get him. Were you watching a different show? Dad Miller's dead. That's why we were all so upset. I don't think you understand how strong my denial is. (laughs) I'm still convinced that Rowan is alive. So like, just leave me be. Well, okay. Now here, you could be right because, so if we're meant to believe that the list that we saw that Clark made, that neither Nate Miller or Kane are on. And so I don't quite know what we're to make of that because they both, Kane was behaving in this episode, I think, like he knew he had a spot and also that obviously Miller had a spot because he said, you know, keep the one, not the other. But if we're meant to believe that the list that Clark made is like, is the real list and Kane isn't on it, we do have the, we have Clark and Bellamy and Raven's spots left that they could fill. So like, maybe it's possible. So there's a chance Dad Miller could come back. Yeah. I definitely think that we're meant to believe that the moment that she makes the decision that she is going to die with those people is watching that the what happened with David Miller um, and and feeling like a sense of responsibility for, you know, like the, the human face on this decision that she made kind of recklessly and not being able to sort of shed the weight of that. But it does feel like saying I love you to Kane sort of juxtaposed next to saying I love you to Clark that potentially even that early in the episode there was some part of her that was thinking like that and that when she's saying goodbye to Clark and Clark says this isn't goodbye that on some level whether it's because she's sick or whether it's because she is you know planning on like going outside with the others or whatever that like that Abby thinks that it is goodbye which was just crushing and so then it made it like I don't know, like I was I was so emotional at the fact that like even though she was so ready to like let herself die, that like Kane just couldn't. You know, mm-hmm. like he just could not. Obviously I want Kane to say it back, but I'm glad that Abby said it first. Because it just aligns with things that I've decided about them. Your <laughs> 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 um, opinions. Just like, yeah. throughout the series because I really feel like Tane possibly started developing feelings for Abby first but he didn't know what they were like he was like oh this is a nice person who likes me now and like makes my heart warm but I that's not love what is that she's just my friend she's not just his friend exactly I knew you were gonna do that I set it up for you I knew you knew (laughs) And then, but I feel like Abby knew right away, like when she started to have feelings for Marcus, that she was falling in love with him. So I feel like it really tracks that she would be able to say, I love you before he could. Well, and I mean, he's never been in love before, right? So yeah. Yeah. Yes. I was so delighted when Ian in that interview basically like low key confirmed all of my demisexual cane headcanons that Mm -hmm. I have been holding on to for so long because it does really feel like 
I mean, it, it feels like it tracks with everything that we know about him that everything that he's experienced with Abby is new. And so I'm totally with you, with you, Sam. I feel like Kane developed feelings first, but Abby realized that it was love first. And I think that that's so yeah. beautiful. Because it's also so in keeping with who they are because like Abby's been in love before. She was married for like almost 20 years. So like there's, she has like an emotional fluency in in this stuff that Kane just does not have. But like what we see of like the evolution, of, like what I love so much about season three and season four Kane is, is how we see, you know, more and more like that the picture that we that we had of him on the arc, and I think the picture he had of himself on the arc, and certainly of who Jaha thought he was, of being, you know, like like the whole like my least favorite line, the strength and weakened by sentiment, is totally inaccurate. Like he's all sentiment. He's this big squishy, like big bearded dad. He just wants yeah. to hug people. He just loves everybody, you know. But I do I think it's important that she's the person who said it first because she's always, I think, in some ways been the person who like makes the overture and he responds, you know, so like when she kisses his cheek, you know, or like then when she says, I can't do this again, she makes a gesture and then he's like, confused puppy, what's happening? Why do you like me? And and the one moment that we have of, of him, like, just full on owning it is that first kiss, the first real kiss, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But I also think in some ways that was only possible because he understood what I can't do this again meant. Like, so she in in some way, like she still had to kind of like make that opening gesture, like open that ground for him to be able to sort of, you know, acknowledge, I guess, or understand what, what he himself was feeling. Or like, oh, I guess that's what that's what this is. And it was impulsive and he was leaving and they didn't know if they were going to see each other again. And But it feels like in most every other interaction, she's the one that leads it just because she's you know, she's like way more emotionally mature about this stuff than he is because she's done it all before. And so this felt like, again, so she said it and he just kind of stood there like silently, like, what the fuck just happened? I just like I got punched in the gut. And I'm just like, yeah, me too. <laughs> Same. <laughs> Tag yourself, I'm Kane. Quite literally burst into tears. <laughs> oh my God. I was so emotional. I was so emotional. I was literally doing laps around my living room like, <laughs> between commercial breaks literally pacing it was too much it was just like too much for my little heart to handle but i like i i agree like i like that she said it first i like that it um that it came from her and the and the physical intimacy they have with each other now like just like the oh little, my god their the little touches like the hands and like the hair oh. touching i mean like just they're they're so soft i'm just like oh i'm weak the way like her hand on his face and then his hands like sliding up her arm. Yes. And then like, then, then the, like after she said it and he's like devastated and he can't move, like she lays her hand over his heart. Like, what are you doing to me? I know. I know. And which then he later does to Jaha. Kane was like very like physically intimate in everyone's spaces this in this episode like which is so ian which is so ian yeah i mean this is why i think i'm so frustrated that they were separated for so long it's like those two actors can convey so much in like eye contact and touches Mm -hmm. of like how far their relationship has come like there's such an intimacy to it that we don't get to see when they're just conversing via radio which Mm -hmm. like their radio conversations are intimate but there's so many more levels when they're in the same space. 
Yeah, like the the radio conversations were definitely better than nothing. And they definitely helped in some key ways, like bridge that gap of that 10 episode separation. But then like the second they're in the same room, they're so physically attuned to each other that it's just like that that you look at them and you're like, okay, so these people have been married for 40 years, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. Then at the end, with the forgive me line, when he's like stroking her hair, it's two words and that touch and his face. Mm-hmm. This is like the whole story of what's going on for Kane in that moment. Like this whole spectrum of emotions, like gratitude that she's okay, knowing that she's going to have a hard time forgiving him, worry about what's going to happen, you know, maybe not being sure because it wasn't necessarily clear in the narrative. Like, is he going to end up on the other side of the door? Is he doing that knowing that she's going to survive, but he's not? Like, all of this is happening. And they just do so much with such a small amount of dialogue because the physicality is so much of, like... And and, and the sex scene, too. Like, in season... In, in episode two, like... Part of what where the emotions came from was like her touching his beard, like him putting the necklace on her, like those little intimate domestic touches and thinking about that in contrast to like, you know, like in the pilot when he arrested her and tried to have her floated. Yeah. You know, like we think about like how far they've come. Started from the bottom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you gotta finish it. Now we're here. There you go. <laughs> It's one of those scenes where, like, I loved it, but I also, like, I'm so devastated by it. Like, I love the I love you. Yeah. And I love the you saved me. But I'm still, I feel like Abby's decision is not quite in character for her. It's not. At Like, because (sighs) Abby Griffin is... Like, fundamentally, at her core, the person who wants to save all the lives. Like, it doesn't matter if they're Grounder or Sky Crew. Like, if there's a person who needs her help, she wants to save them. And logistically, Abby Griffin knows that she saved 1,100 people by opening that door, even though she condemned 300 people. Which is the culling all over again. Yeah. 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 So, like, yes... I understand that it would, like, cause her deep pain, but she also, like, logically she would know that she saved, that she did the right thing. Like, she wouldn't need repeated convincing that opening the door was the right thing. Except for, I feel like, Jaha's continual, like, beating down of what, like, killing their own people thing. Like, I feel like that got to her in, like, a really devastating way. So yeah. this is why I hate Jaha. Yeah. Well, that got to me, too. I, like, for me, I really felt like the thing that I struggle with the most about Abby in this episode is the thing that bugged me the most about Jasper's storyline, which is, like, you can get me to a place of feeling like I'm seeing this character in a moment of, like, profound emotional distress where they have, like fallen into a dark place they can't get out of and don't know what to do and maybe for the moment it seems like you know okay well then I want it to sort of just be over like you can you can get me there you know like like Abby like the crushing weight of survivor's guilt or feeling like she is reckoning with the things that she did on the island and not recognizing herself like like okay like Mm -hmm. I could buy that except except 
the fact we talked about before that she's their only main doctor. So that to me feels like Abby putting herself outside on the wrong side of the door and, and leaving all of the remains of humanity with only one doctor, like Jackson's great, but like the, like, you know, Aaron was saying when we talked about this before today, she's like, there are medical procedures that require two doctors. Yeah. And so to me, it feels like similarly to how with Jasper, the thing that I really struggled with was how he became a person who wanted to watch other people die, because that feels like such a gap from like Jasper, the protector caretaker with the huge big heart who always who who fell into this dark place at the end of season two, specifically because he believed he could have saved everyone and Clark didn't let him. Mm -hmm. So how that person became the leader of the death cult was just a place where I was like, you didn't, if that was how it was supposed to end, you didn't fill in the blanks to get me there in a way that feels plausible. And I feel like with Abby, I can get Abby unspooling over what she did on the island. I can get Abby feeling like maybe I am a monster. Maybe I did do the wrong thing. Kane's telling her this. Jaha's telling her this. She doesn't know how she feels. She's in a dark place. Like all that I can buy. But I don't buy a, her losing her fight so quickly, mm-hmm. like her, yeah. her sort of inherent Abby Slytherin find another way-ness. And also that she would then have, that she would have a conversation with Kane about her own death and not mention Clark and not acknowledge that she would then be condemning other people possibly to death because she's leaving them short of a doctor. So that's the part where it feels like like everything up until Abby saying, like, send me to my death and leave the other 1,199 people in Jackson's soul charge. I can believe that she has been permanently transformed by the choices that she's had to mm-hmm. make, and maybe this is like the last straw. If that was the case... I really wish we had seen much more post-island fallout of Abby still struggling with all this stuff because we saw her like meltdown and smash the machine. And then we didn't really check back in with how she was doing until now. And it's like, she didn't even really go that far. Like, yeah, that one guy died. (laughs) But everyone on that island went that far. But Jackson yeah, everyone, right. everyone on the island went that far, and then when it came down to, like, Emory or not, Abby couldn't do it. She mm-hmm. didn't follow through, and she didn't let Clark climb in the chamber, which honestly is, like, a good thing, probably. I'd love the qualifier there, probably. <laughs> yeah, she wasn't, like, she didn't go crazy. She was, like, scared for her child. So, like, it's all totally yeah. believable. Like, she's lost patience before. And, like, that guy, while arguably probably not as bad as Emory made him out to be because he's not the same person, wasn't a good guy. Like, uh... I don't think it's about, like, the morality of him as a person. And it's more about, like, the fact that the show keeps waiting the fact that Abby took this innocent life while also forgetting that Abby straight up shot someone at the end of season three and no one bothered to deal with that. Yeah, I've just been interpreting that as like the guy must not have died then because yeah, yeah. because that conversation that she had with Kane was as though this was the first time she'd ever intentionally taken a life. Exactly. And even then her intention wasn't to take his life still. Right. Like it yeah. was it was that was a side effect to trying to save people. And that's what I mean, that's what she does. Like when yeah. like sometimes there are casualties 
to Abby's choices, like that's real. But it's, and she makes the wrong choice sometimes. And she makes but the wrong choice. It's choices. never her intention. No, to- it's always a side effect of a plan that was supposed to save more people. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I and like I said, like we talked about before, like I'm totally willing to meet you at a place where the storyline that you're giving me is that this is the last straw of like the unrelenting pressure of Abby feeling like since she landed on the ground, she's had to make all of these choices that have sort of worn her down into a version of herself that she doesn't recognize. That makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. But I feel like then then in the interval between her making that choice with like Bayless's death and almost, you know, shooting up Amore and whatever, then like we should have seen continual fallout for that and we yeah. didn't. It was just sort of like... Now she has moved from the science storyline into this bunker storyline. So we don't know if she's still sick. No one seems to be being like, hey, how's Abby doing mental health wise after she destroyed a bunch of machinery? So I feel like I like I could be persuaded. I just currently am not persuaded. And it's like severe emotional whiplash. And this is why I think it's so much like Harper's snap decision is last episode. We have like Rebel Abby. Like, at her peak, with Bellamy, risking everything to save not only, like, the people outside and the grounders, but to save Kane. So for her to then turn around and say, I risked everything to save your life, but I don't want to live at the same time. Yeah. That, that, that those two things don't marry together. And Rebel Squad Abby... Like saving the day with Bellamy to try to save not and not just not just for Kane and Octavia, but that she was very motivated by the like, human race. We could save all those people, yeah. you know. So yeah, so I just so I feel like the leap from there to here. I just I don't know. Mm-mm. You can edit this out if you feel like it's too shady, but like <laughs> just to point out. Rebel Abbey was written by two women, and then this episode was not. That's a really good point. That's a completely fair point, actually. Yeah, yeah. Like, so I feel like the Benson sisters just sort of understand her character a little better. Whereas Abby needing to be in peril is for plot reasons to scare the crap out of the audience and there's nothing Aaron as as deftly as I think as he handled character interactions in this episode there's nothing yeah. he likes more than scaring people <laughs> so like it was like was the was her actual like character like core personality like sacrificed for the sake of uh plot terror mm-hmm I think this really gets back to like one of the like one of the things I was saying before about like and actually Selena mentioned this when she was on meditation. This is really the first season that she felt like she's like, I can I can tell who wrote which episode. Yeah. yeah. Agree. I think it is new and I think it is actually it's totally worth noting. The difference in Abby's a great example, but I think we see it with like we see it with Clark, we see it with Bellamy, like the way that different writers are writing these characters. Like, I think some of why this season feels inconsistent is because like you can you can maybe feel a lack of writers' room consensus on some of these arcs and some of these characters and who they really are. And some of them I feel like you can tell, like, okay, these people get this character or this particular relationship on a really, really deep level. And the Bensons always tend to do right by the adults. Like, I think the Bensons mm-hmm. really get Kane and Abby. But I do think it's really, 
I hadn't thought about that, but you're right that like Abby having plot driving agency in an episode that was written by women versus Abby being an emotional motivator for Kane in an episode written by men. I absolutely think like, I think that's actually a really key point that I had not noticed. And now I'm like, you've blown my mind. Like Aaron writes great episodes. Like that's, Oh yeah, no, no totally. Yeah, I think it's like yeah, Aaron yeah. and Wade, right? Yeah, yeah. Aaron and Wade. Like yeah. their episodes have been some of my favorites so far this season. They're wonderful writers, great yeah. action writers, great drama writers. Yeah, yeah. But I just feel like they they don't understand Abby's character as much. They don't feel the need to like put her in the role she deserves. It takes work for a lot of the writers to push Abby into having agency, and. It's either you want to put the effort in or you don't. And with this episode, with the Bensons, they obviously, like, worked really hard at it. And, you know, with Aaron, he obviously gave us, like, the thing that, like, we've been dreaming of, which is, like, the I love yeah, you, love right? Mm-hmm. Which is huge and important. And, you know, I'm so grateful for it. And I'm also really grateful that they brought the Kane and Jaha relationship back because yeah. – I feel that they are really good with Kane, Jaha, and Octavia, especially. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All those characters are wonderfully written. It's just like Abby sort of falls to the side in this episode as the love interest. Yeah. Which is what she was in most of season three. Right. My, like, shipper heart loved it. Mm-hmm. But my oh, feminist yeah. heart, <laughs> little heart. Yeah, like, as a critic, you look at it and you're like, okay, well, this is a really obvious role that they've shoved her into. Yeah. I was talking to Aaron about this. We had really different reactions to the show because I felt like there was parts where my shipper heart was jumping up and down. Mm -hmm. And yet in the back of my mind, I knew like, I know Aaron doesn't like this scene and I know exactly why. And later when I'm calmer, I'm sure I will also see it. (laughs) Yeah, it's just like, I loved the emotion of it, but Abby just needs more agency. Yeah, Like she needs to be in control of her own story and like be consistent with her own story. But Kane in this scene, so good. Flawless. Yeah, yeah totally. Well, so maybe this is a good transition to that final moment mm-hmm. where, like, speaking of agency, I think if there is no fallout in the relationship between Kane and Abby from him removing her agency to save her life, that also will not feel authentically Abby Griffin. You know, yeah. and um, and the and the degree of angst could be, you know, on a sliding scale. Like, it doesn't have to be like a breakup. Yeah, like, it's finale time. We're not going to get a lot of time to work. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I do feel like, I think it's an interesting, it's a really interesting, like, we, like you guys were saying before, like, it's a really Clark move. It's a really Abby move. Kane doing the Griffin thing and finding the third way and finding a way that is not warlike in its violence but is violent in that Strategic. it does remove agency from all of these people you know i i think when everyone wakes up and realizes who survived and who didn't survive and realizes who's on the other side of the door that despite saying like we're going to have a lottery and it's going to be fair i think there's going to be fallout from that and i'm really interested in how particularly with like the two of them how that shapes their relationship and i and i'm hoping i'm really really hoping that it becomes that this is the moment for kane's i love you like for kane to yeah. say like like even at the cost of his own life like even if he still isn't on the list p.s i just thought of this so if kane is not 
on the list and they have to like make room for him because they have like absent people. What I really, really want is for either Clark or Bellamy. And I honestly will be equally happy either way mm-hmm. for yeah. one of them, like textually in Canon to say to Octavia, I'm not coming back. Give my spot to Kane, either Bellamy as sort of like a way to repair how their relationship has kind of fractured off and on this season or for Clark, which might make more sense to yeah. do it as sort of a like, Redemption. Atonement yeah. for yeah, having for left on his before. Like, I think that reversal could be really lovely. One of the things the Cabby fandom is forever grousing about this season, because it just keeps happening, is the total lack of putting any effort into Kanan and Abby reunions. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so I think if this is the third in the, like, what could be an emotionally affecting reunion moment that they then fast forward. Like, if she wakes up and is not... Like, they're just fine. That's what I believe is going to happen. Like, if like that little scene in the preview that's, like, Octavia addressing everyone and being like, congratulations, you made it. If that's the first there. scene, and they're all already just there, and, like, I, that will also feel like we got scammed a little bit. Because I actually really feel like for it to make any sense at all that Abby wanted to die, we still need more to make that feel like it actually came from somewhere. We didn't get enough of it in this episode. It's got to continue into Fort 13. It's got to tie into whatever they're doing with her illness. It's got to tie into whatever's happening between her and Kane. It's got to tie into, yeah, you know, like all that kind of stuff. And we haven't seen any stakes for it yet. We need to see her know that Clark's alive. We need to see her confront Kane, but also forgive Kane. But just like the way that he, I feel like it's evident in that moment that he does love her. Yeah. Because like he doesn't say it back in the previous scene, but the way that he he tells the grounder like repeatedly that she stays and then like just so gently turns her like the entire setup of that scene is so romantic somehow Mm -hmm. like with the slow motion and like the music and like the gentle like way that he touches her face and then like asking for forgiveness. Oh, it's just, that's why when people were so upset with him not saying it back, I was like, I'm not upset about that at all. No, no, I think he didn't say it back in that moment because he was just so like shell shocked by what she just said. Yeah, like he he couldn't say anything. He couldn't even yeah. move. No, yeah. But yeah, but I think he said it like he said it without saying it in that moment. I absolutely think you're right. Yeah. And I feel like there's potential for him to say it next week. I, like, do I don't feel like I need to hear him say it in order for it to be an understood thing. Yeah, completely agree. Yeah, yeah. I would I would love it if we get it. I would love it if it came in the context of him being like, you can be mad, but like, I couldn't let this happen to you and not stop it. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Have we covered everything we need to cover now that we are at almost three and a half hours? Jesus Christ. Yeah, we nailed it. <laughs> Sam, one thing you want, besides baby theory, one thing besides this mild child that you want to see from Kane and Abby in season five? Marriage. Brittany, one thing you want to see for Kane and Abby in season five? Yeah, marriage. Like, 
I've been wanting a wedding since season one, guys. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Or, like, it doesn't even have to be, like, a big thing. Like, they can exchange rings or, like, say vows or... Just, Matching tattoos. Yeah, I don't care. ground or tattoos. Yeah, there you go. Like, anything. Any, like, symbolic, like, betrothal. Claire, how about you? I would really like to see, like, however the sort of reunion happens with, like, with the bunker. Like, I want to see that five-person family unit. Like, mm-hmm. oh, yes. like, like Abby being the Blake's mom and Kane and Clark. And, like, like I want to see the five of them as, like, a unified, established unit of family. Because I feel like there's a lot of, like, there's there's Abby and Octavia ground that we haven't explored. Mm-hmm. We got a little bit of Bellamy and Abby, but, like, I'd love to see more of so that. We got more, a please. little bit of Kane and Clark, but I really want more of it. So, like, what I, what I really want is I want, like, tearful mom and dad hugs when Bellamy and Clark come back from space. That's what I want. Yes. And also for them to be together for more than, like, four episodes a season well so here's so the good news is God, like yes. if okay if a statistically significant chunk of season five happens in the bunker either in real time or if we get flashbacks they can't really go that far well i guess i shouldn't say that they'll probably think of a way to have them just in different rooms in the same but they'll be sharing a bedroom right like if they'll like yeah. they'll have they'll have a bunk together we'll have to like have sex really quietly but they can handle it yeah just like like i can i can handle like a couple episodes, but like, not ten. Never go back to ten. Not and even, I, not even the six that happened in season two. Like, don't, don't do me like this again. I really like it when they have separate storylines where we get yes. to see them, yeah, like as distinct individuals that are more than just a ship, um, and more than just a couple. Like on their own individually, they're so interesting, and on their own, they're tied into so many other key relationships. So, like, what's the right balance between, you know, giving them separate storylines and also letting us see that relationship evolve? Mm-hmm. We know they can do that though because they did it in season one. Because, and in season two. Yeah, and, t- and in season two, because they had different stories, but they, and like, even though it wasn't romantic yet, they had several scenes together. So they could still do it, like, with their own stories and then have those scenes that they share together be romantic. Mm-hmm. You know what's different, though, is I think, I think there are some writers, and I think you see this in TV shows all the time, who don't believe that good television can be mined out of a couple once they are together. And I think that's a really, I I think it's a super reductive, super lazy, like, like you look at like, how I met your mother, Ben and Leslie on Parks and Rec, you know, or like the Bartlett's on the West Wing, you know, like Mm -hmm. you have Mm -hmm. like, like established canon couples that either get together and stay together or that are together when, when the curtain goes up and are together at the end. And coach and Mrs. Taylor, the Coens. Mm hmm. I think it's really cheap and lazy to think that you have to continually keep splitting couples up or kill them off or instill false drama or have them break up and get back together and that there's no real substantive story to be mined out of a couple that is a functional unit working through big problems together in a unified way. So I feel like there's enormous capacity for 
compelling dramatic stories about Kane and Abby in a relationship in season five that don't require them to be separated, that don't require them to break up, that don't require one of them to die. And I think there are a lot richer and more complicated possibilities for that. You know, he sort of breezed past all the easy exits, like, oh, the drama is that she's terminally ill. Well, okay. But then, like... I didn't sign up for Adama Roslin 2.0. Don't put me in that position. Well, and, and I feel like, you know, like, isn't it... Isn't it more interesting and less expected to let the drama be about the fact that, like, they're still really different people? Uh-huh. You know, like, they've impacted yeah. each other, they've changed each other, they've grown so much, but, like, Abby is always going to be more reckless, and she has not really gotten over, in a lot of ways, her kind of instinct of distrust of the grounders, mm-hmm. and Kane has. Bring us more of that, like, season two, like, Two eleven when they had that fight. Yeah. But then like got back like by the end of the episode they were still on good terms. Like give us more of that. That's by far one of my favorite cabbie scenes of all oh, time. Yeah. Is yeah. That- Me too. Give us like really rich, nuanced Conflict. adult married people fights. Yes. Yes. Because because that is like that is what we're missing on television is like relationship conflict that feels like a real relationship conflict. Yeah, you know, and and that's why, like, one of the things that I really love that we talked about in the, um, I think it was four or five, the episode with the with the Briller breakup. Like, I'm really glad that you know, like, if they had to write Jonathan off the show because he's on this other show, um, that instead of doing like the really stupid thing, which would be killing him off, or <laughs> or coming up with some lazy, you know, like. Brian likes another boy or like bringing in Max and then or whatever. Like instead of going the cheap and easy route, they were like, these people have ideological conflicts that are just now coming to the fore because of this life or death situation where they have fundamentally different values about human life. Yeah. It's irreconcilable differences. Yes. And that's, and that is a thousand times more interesting to me than them either breaking up because like, Brian had a boy on the side or, or killing one of them off because this way it's like, it's messy. Like real life is messy where it's like, they love each other, but they were probably really young when they got together. They were separated when Nate went to prison. Then they were separated for three months when Brian was with ice nation and Brian changed a lot and Miller's changed a lot. And now it's just like, wow, we're looking at this situation with these ice nation slaves and we're seeing it so differently that it's like, I don't even recognize you anymore. And that's the kind of shit that I want. Like that's what this show when it's at its best, it can really dig into like you you can sell me on an AI trying to enslave the world through like chips that attach to your brain and all of this crazy hard sci-fi stuff mm-hmm. if it's rooted in realistic human behavior. Yeah. What I really want for Kane and Abby in season 5 is to like let this relationship evolve like a relationship and let them be the complicated people that they are let us have those domestic moments that sharing space and feeling like they're a married couple but like let them also stay the like hot-headed and stubborn and complicated people that they always were and like isn't that a much richer and more complex way to write like an adult relationship mm-hmm and mm-hmm. I do think the show is absolutely capable of it because oh, when yeah. the show is doing like relationships like that, they always turn those cliches on their heads. Like, you know, with Finn and Raven and Clark, it was, you know, Raven and Clark were the ones who bonded 
over that entire thing. And there was yeah. a lot of, like, really rich drama from that. And then with Clark and Lexa, there was, like, you know, despite everything, they still wanted to be together. And none of it felt cheesy. Like, none of that relation, one, not, none of the romantic relationship drama that happens on the show feels cheesy. Yeah. Yeah, because they, because A, because they have this fantastic cast. Yes. And B, because they really do try to root these things in you know, in real human behavior and people's real choices. And we were all hoping that this was going to be the season where we would get Canon and Cabby in a relationship, sharing space and being a, you know, battle couple and being a unit. And we got like two episodes of that and then they were separated. So now that they're all like everyone's physically locked into the same space together for five years, I really want us to be able to get a chance to see those moments. Yeah. So what we're saying is have them get married and let them be in a relationship. Have them get married, let them be in a relationship, <laughs> let them fight sometimes, and a baby and a couple more sex scenes. That would be great. Thanks. Bye. Yes, Thanks. thank you. All right. Well, now it's midnight for me. So <laughs> it's 3 a.m. for Samantha. I'm so sorry, Sam. It's okay. We had, we had such big ambitions. I loved every minute of it, so. I'm so glad. Uh, okay, that is a wrap on the Team Adults Roundtable. Um, thank you so much to Sam and Brittany for joining us. We'll be back next week. Erin will be back. And it's going to be just her and me. We're going to be talking about 412 and also 413 and kind of wrapping up the season as a whole and sort of taking a deep dive into where we think season five is going to go. It will almost certainly end up having to go two parts. So just brace yourself for the fact that we're probably going to have lots of things to say. But we hope that you enjoyed our, our little Team Adults adventure. And we will see you next week. Thanks, Sam and Brittany. Bye. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. bye.